experienced in these blackouts, blackout, stretches of time you can't account for. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of Captain's Log. This is your trusty captain, Jose Valle Jr., joined by my most trusted co-host and first officer, suck that, Max, Mason Schrader. <laughs> no, yeah. Kidding. Nothing but love. Welcome, Mason. It's good to hear your sweet, sweet voice. It's been a while. Uh, how is this mortal life treating you? Is it is it hot in Iowa at this point? Yeah, no, it's hot all the time. I'm sweaty. I'll tell you guys um, this because I feel like maybe a lot of people don't realize that the Midwest is humid. Yeah, it's the worst. Uh, I just remember hating because I would only experience a little bit of summer, like at the end of, of spring semester and the beginning of fall semester. Yeah. And I fucking hated it. And I remember like Assholes, August, I was like, this sucks. Yeah. Assholes from like the coast are always like, oh, man. No, yeah. So it's like you don't understand. That's It's like oppressive. It's, it hurts like today, to go outside. Today where I, where I work is like probably 20 minutes down, away from the coast. And it was pretty humid, but and, and mm-hmm. my coworkers were complaining, and I was like, "Dude, this does suck because we're pampered now." But I was yeah. like, "Honestly, this is nothing compared to fucking Iowa summers." It was the reason tough. the reason we have less homeless people is because they'll die in both winter and summer. Yeah, it's so bad. That's what I love about the Midwest is that it's just horrible. You get bad yeah. hot or you get bad cold. You yeah. get pretty here and there, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we did take a little bit of a long break there, guys. We're just living life. We're just living dirtbag summer, you know? You know? Just to, the, busy. to the best well, of Jose's our Well, Jose's busy. Jose's got a lot on his plate. I'm just working. I'm just a grown-up now. I mean, same. That was most mainly it. Kind of. You're doing, like, stuff, though. Like, you're doing, like, multiple things. Going I back just, to school, and that's yeah. why I need everyone to donate to the Patreon. Yeah. I need all your money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Mason, listen. I know you've got Chinese shorts on. You've got yep. your Choose Kindness shirt on. Yes. I hope you've got your Colt Talk underwear on, though. Always. Good, because today we're taking one last look at our old Mormon offshoot friends for the final installment in our Ervil Baron and the Church of the Lamb of God with part six, The Four O'Clock Murders, the title of you our know, source and the name of a pretty solid death band. Ooh, yeah. Like a death metal band, you know? I actually, I've been wearing my Colt underwear all day, which as everybody knows is a thick heavy wool mm-hmm. so it's just like matted yeah, and wet one. it's so yeah, it's wet so bad well mason are you ready to dive in no you texted me and said it was going to be bad so read th- th- read them the text i sent you <laughs> yeah 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 hold on let me one second yeah so i got a so jose texts me like we're good to record tonight you know yeah of course we are he goes uh I hope you're ready, pal, because this episode is going to fucking suck, man. And I'm like, oh, good, question mark? And he goes, maybe my least favorite one. And yeah. then just a smiley face. Yep. So, But it's a smiley face with a hands like like the jazz hands. He's doing jazz yeah. hands. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel nothing uh, but dread and terror. 
as it should. Um, yeah, look, we don't really do uh, trigger warnings on the show because, like we've said before, the show is just a trigger warning. Um, this is not quite uh-oh territory in, like, description-wise, but it is uh-oh in emotion-wise. I will say that. So moving forward, if you're a squeamish person who is easily affected by just emotional bad shit happening to good people, just buckle in. Be aware. Yeah, be buckle in. We're, we're going heavy here with a lot of stuff. So just yeah, cool. LeBaron died in prison in 1981, but left a hit list of ex-followers marked for death. Most of you don't know that different types of criminality in parents are a hereditary nature that children have a very great tendency to follow. A scientific study was conducted regarding that? I done it myself. Exchange between Ervil LeBaron and Richard Forbes in Laredo, Texas, June 3rd. 1979. When we last left our Lamb of God friends, their prophet and leader, Ervil LeBaron, the one mighty and strong piece of shit, had yeah. finally kicked the bucket. In a pretty weird way, too. Remember? It was like he either exercised himself to death, overdosed mm -hmm. on pills, or crushed his own windpipe. We're yeah. not really sure. Cool. But before doing so, he had written his final manifesto, the Book of New Covenants in which he provided instructions for the continuation of his ministry, named Arturo as his heir, and gave a list of new blood atonement targets. And it is in this strange aftermath that our story picks up. The thing that was so special about Ervil's cult that differentiates him from Manson is that most of it was family. Real family. Brought together through blood or marriage, but family nonetheless. This is something that is emphasized in the Mormon faith. As we previously mentioned in the earlier episodes, this can be precisely what keeps people from leaving the faith. And this was the case with the Lamb of God. See, Mark Chinowith had realized that Ervil was insane in 1981 and said as much to anyone who listened, yet he still taught his children Ervil's belief system for years following Ervil's death. Dan Jordan had always been vocal about his feelings to Ervil, telling him to his face that he thought he was spouting nothing but hooey, yet he also continued to not only preach, but follow Ervil's teachings. Rena Chinoweth had divorced Ervil in July 1980, but before she remarried in 1981, she made her fiancé join the Church of the Lamb of God. By the time Ervil finished his last push-up at Point of the Mountain State Prison, what remained of the Lamb of God had been divided into three camps. Dan Jordan had settled with his array of wives and children in Denver or in Colorado and distanced himself from everyone else. A chapter in Texas consisting of the extended Chinoweth family and some friends had been created by Mark Chinoweth. And finally, Arturo LeBaron led the Phoenix Group, made up of the sons Ervil had ordained in his last months. With the death of the prophet, the three would-be cult leaders competed for the mantle of the one mighty and strong just like every other fucking moron in this story, of which we've yeah. done five episodes and none of them fucking learned a lesson. It is nuts that it this has all come down to the one thing every single fucking so time. It was so fucking infuriating to me as I was uh, finishing the, the research for this that it all, this, like the last two chapters, they're just a repetition of everything that happened before. It, uh -huh. feels, like, it feels like this chunk, this episode, is just a, re a soft reboot where they were like, what if we did the things from the oh, first yeah. movie again, but yeah. slightly different? That's it's, literally it's, what it all feels like. 
the rise of Skywalker? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, 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 okay. Dan Jordan argued that because he had been Ervil's right-hand man and first disciple, he should get the title. Not to mention he also held the crown of everlasting life. Mark mm-hmm. Chinowith just assumed the role. Uh, he just was like, no, I'm in charge. Like, he had no reasoning. He just said, no, I'm in charge. He wasn't like, I'm the one mighty and strong. No, no, he, he was just like, I got a penis. Yeah, so he Might as well he, like, be Im- me. he imposed new dress codes, like new like cool. moral codes and everything. Yeah. Nice. Arturo, however, argued that he had not only been uh, named heir in the Book of New Covenants, but sure. according to Mormon doctrine, going back to Joseph Smith, the mantle of prophet descended to the eldest son automatically, which is, if you remember in the first uh, episode, oh, this was a contention... Uh, that's where the, that's where the splinter happened in the original Mormon right, church. Right, because the because the mom was like it has Joseph, to be not Josephine. Uh, uh, what's her, yeah, yeah, I can't remember her name, but she was like it has to be Joseph Smith Jr. because that or the Joseph Smith the third because that's what was described, and then yeah, everyone else, and then Brigham Young pulled out a gun and was like, no, I'm fucking mm, yeah. in charge. Um, yeah. so the thing is, if these three had been paying any attention during our series, which I don't know why <laughs> they're not listening. They should be. Uh, they would have learned that they didn't need to worry about having smaller congregations. They needed to worry about the fact that if they or their companions didn't indoctrinate the remaining Lamb of God, those disciples might come back one day looking to blood atone them. For the next, I don't bit, know why that would be a problem. It's not like that's happened. Yeah, before. again, they didn't listen to the fucking five previous episodes, which it's I'm kind of mad about. It's not like that's the entire history of their family and Mormonism in its entirety. Yeah, no, not at all. For the next bit, we're going to focus on Arturo Morel LeBaron. 31 years old at this point, he had spent most of his life in the shadow of his father. Always the loyal servant. He had Good old Artie Mushrooms. Uh, Morel is a type of mushroom. Is it? Yes, really? and it's native to Iowa. Wow, that's, I mean, that was Ervil's middle name too. That's very interesting. Huh. Evil Mushroom, huh? This all comes down to a guy named Evil Mushroom. Yep. He had even threatened to kill his own mother if she didn't straighten up and obey his father's word. While Ervil was imprisoned, Arturo had delivered messages and kept tabs on his father's younger children. He had also journeyed between states to threaten the less devoted cult members. One Utah police officer said of Arturo, Arturo was a miserable little shit. He was arrogant, uh, cocky, and mean. That's why Ervil made him chief. He knew that if anyone was going to carry on his mission, it would be Artaro. There were some great quotes from police officers in, in this last section of them just being like, there was one that I didn't include, but they describe a, a cult member later on, and they just go, that guy was a fuck. Like, they just say that. <laughs> <laughs> like, that guy was a fuck. And I think yeah. that's really funny. By the fall of 1981, Arturo was indoctrinating his younger brothers into the ways of the Lord. The younger Good. boys... Yeah, as, as he should, as one yeah. should. Mm-hmm. The younger boys would be taught the gospel and how to repair appliances, while the older boys were shown how to handle weapons and steal pickup trucks, an operation that became the financial backbone of Arturo's ministry. First, they would scope out a truck they liked. They would take down the license plate number. Then, and this is just shows you how insane, I think, pre-9-11 world was, where you could just get information. Right. Uh but they first, so, so then they would make their way to D, the DMV, and they would tell the worker that they were looking to find out if a truck, the truck was for sale. So then the worker would go, okay, and they would print out the owner's information, at which point mm. the boys would drive to the residence 
and scope it out. Like they would just be like, hey, I saw this black truck. These are the plates. I want to know if he's selling. And they'd be like, yeah, here's his home address. Cool. And they would that's be like, good. cool. And I'm like, that's so fun that you used to be able to do that. You heard it here, folks. Uh, Jose's happy 9-11 happened. I'm <laughs> Wait a second. That's what you said. Oh, no, 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 no. That's what you said. Well, they would then buy ignition systems that match the model they were eyeing and go in and replace them in the dead of night and make with the truck. They How, would then, at what yes. point are the DMV people not like, Well, they, there's also like a shit ton of them. So they're just like, I guess it was a common oh. thing. I don't know. Oh, I, okay, fair enough. Uh, they would take it back to the repair shop where the old serial number would be sanded off and then replaced with a new one. License plates and inspection stickers were also switched as a cherry on top, and the trucks were taken to Dallas to be resold. The money from this operation was stashed in Colt's safe houses. If any member of the Colt was picked up and taken into custody, they would use assumed names, and the girls of the Colt would be mobilized to raise the bail money before fingerprinting could be done and the perp could be identified as a LeBaron. The, quote, burned Colt member would then assume a new identity, courtesy of Linda Ray Johnson, one of Irville's wives, who would make fake birth certificates. By 1982, the Arturo faction was a well-oiled communal criminal enterprise. You know, if they stopped there, it's kind of cool. Yes. And later on, too, they, they, like, refine it. And I'm like, if you guys stop there, I kind of would have rooted for you. Like, if you weren't yeah, killing that's just, people, you're just, I would have been, You're just doing like, Fast and Furious. Exactly. <laughs> you guys are just the fucking familia if you're, you just stop there. Now, imagine if at one point in the movies, Dom Toretto was like... We have to fucking blood atone this guy. <laughs> Whole different movies, right? It's for me, familiar. Just like point blank shooting him at. Yeah. Hey, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, have I ever told you about the personal prophet Joseph Smith? Yeah. What? Toretto, what? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. You're not ready. At some point in the 60s. You know why, you know why Paul Walker's not in these movies anymore? Why? Blood atonement. Oh, God. At some point in the 60s, an Irville loyalist had bought a large plot of land in the Sonora region of Mexico, and by 1981, Arturo had taken control of Rancho La Joya and began to move his followers down south. He had also found himself a Dan Jordan of his own in the form Ooh. of Leo Ivonyuk. I'm pretty cool. sure that's how he said Great name. A criminal whom Irville had met during his time in Ensenada prison and befriended. Uh, Leo's story, I left it out, but I'll just quickly summarize it. It's kind of crazy. So the way he ended up in Ensenada prison was U.S. Coast Guard rolls up on these boats. They see one of them drive off, and then they, like, they see them both like speed off in different directions. And this uh -huh. is like in the U.S. waters. And okay. they see that they're heading for Mexico, and the U.S. like radios into Mexico, and they're like, hey, we're chasing these guys. Can we enter your waters? And Mexico's like, fucking get them. Like, yeah, you know? okay. And the U.S. is like, cool. And they're like running up on him. And then the guy starts shooting. So they're shooting at the fucking boat. They shoot the driver or whatever. They pull up. The driver's fucking bleeding out. And then the other guy in the boat is Leo. And they were like trying to smuggle drugs. Mm. Hands up and in and out of prison. Meets Irvil LeBaron. Fucking falls in love with him, basically. Like just is enamored by him. Believes cool. everything that he says. Cool. So they become friends. Irville eventually gets him released and he gives him a second wife in the form of Julia Castillo Rios. For the longest time, Leo and Arturo seemed to complement one another quite well. Uh, Leo was about 10, 12 years older than uh, Arturo, so he's in his 40s. So this is a real me and you. This situation. is a real me and you, yeah. Okay, if we were yeah, yeah. 
if my dad left me a Colt. <laughs> uh-huh. He might. I don't and know. And I smuggled drugs. <laughs> in. Who knows what the future holds for us, Mason? I, that would be something that I'd go to. I'd be like, no, we're in international waters. And they'd be like, what? I thought we were in international waters. <laughs> for the longest Fuck. time. <laughs> so, so, the, so Leo was jovial. He was pleasant. He was a yeah. very skilled orator. And he had a very similar writing style to Ervil. So he, like, mm. he filled that hole. That was left behind. Yeah, he, he filled also, Irvel's hole. Huh? Oh, I'm sure he did. They were in jail for a while together, in there together. So, he also wholeheartedly believed in the faith. But when the group made the move south of the border, the relationship began to strain. Some say it was because Arturo became erratic and self-absorbed. He grew his hair and beard out and wore sandals all the time and acted as if he were Jesus. Basically, cool. everything that came from Arturo's mouth was regarded as gospel, and it had to be carried out immediately. Mm. That's I can't joke. imagine that going to someone's head. <laughs> yeah, It seemed Arturo cared less about continuing the faith and more about creating a criminal empire with himself on the throne. So by the spring of 1983, La Jolla was divided into two groups, those who backed Arturo and those who backed Leo. Surprisingly, it ended boiling down to race, but not the way you would think, Mason, because Leo was white. I, so, yeah, like, I gather yeah. that Leo was From white the last name Yuvonyuk. Yeah, yeah, Leo Yavonyuk and yeah. Arturo. Yeah, yeah. I, I got it. So despite the fact, and this is so interesting to me because I've actually seen this in real It's colorism. Colorism is a very real thing, but it's so interesting how internalized racism works. And I think it also has to do uh-huh. with the fact that Ervil was his father. But despite the fact that he had a Mexican mother, Arturo seemed to have some contempt toward his darker-skinned parishioners. He preferred to spend time and listen to his full-blooded Anglo brothers and gave them authority roles. The Mm. Mexican cult members like Gamaliel and Raul Rios, who had been with Ervil from the beginning, were shut out of the leadership completely. But Leo, on the other hand, he preached equality of all races. So we have a hero. Yeah. He had genuine affection for his, quote, laminite comrades and a link into the Rios family through his wife. So when the split finally happened, most of the Mexican members actually went with Leo and moved off the ranch. And, you know, the remaining Anglos stayed with um, Arturo. And it's just really interesting. And I think, again, like, I think in in this case, in this case, it's very obvious because we know that Ervil was a massive white nationalist and like a raging uh, or uh, white supremacist. Uh Um, But but in cases, I think you see this a lot in Mexico because of the the. The, ma- the genetic identity of the country where it's like, you know, you know half of them are Spaniard descended, half are uh, mestizos, the other half are natives and whatever. And so I think you see a lot of the time, like the lighter skinned Mexicans will often look down on darker skinned uh, Mexicans. And it's like, buddy, <laughs> that's friendly fire. Like, yeah, it's the same race. We both got fucked over by the Spaniards. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, Leo would send a, a, a letter uh, uh, to those left at La Jolla uh, after his departure, urging them to join him. And, and he told them that he needed them to ease his homesickness, that he was really homesick. Uh, they didn't respond. And in the coming months, uh, he sought to ease that uh, homesickness himself through violence. Uh in the, yeah. in the conversion of the Rio's brothers and the other Mexicans, he now had soldiers and gunmen for his attempt to take La Jolla by force. To receive your own free copy of the Book of Mormon, 
just call this number. It's a gift from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And let me know how you like it. Okay. I think you will. Last episode, we spoke of Isaac LeBaron, the brave young boy whose testimony helped put his murderous father behind bars to face justice. We talked of how he shared with the courtroom his desire to live a normal uh, life free of fear. Mm-hmm. So one would assume that with the conviction of his father and later his death, Isaac would have found this. But this was not the case. Isaac was terrified, rightly so, of sure. retaliation from the Lamb of God for his part in their downfall. He had always feared his older brother Arturo, who terrorized him his whole life, uh, threatening him with death if he ever spoke to the police, beating him, all that kind of stuff. But with his father alive, Isaac always had a glimmer of hope that Arturo couldn't actually kill him. Now that he was gone and Arturo was the prophet, Isaac knew it was only a matter of time before he was blood atoned. So he spent most of his days after the trial wandering the American West. He was around 17, 18 at this point. Uh, So he spent like two years wandering, going from one trusted relative or firstborn or friend to another. He would stay for weeks or months until the paranoia set in and he felt he had to escape yet again. By late 1982, Isaac made a terrifying discovery. He, too, had inherited the LeBaron family curse. He had begun to hear voices. Voices that told him he was a new one mighty and strong. Mm -hmm. But the difference here is Isaac didn't listen to them. He was afraid of them. He thought he was going insane and would follow in his father's murderous footsteps, so he reached out to Dave Yoakum, the attorney who had taken care of him throughout the trial, and Dave told Isaac that he was now in private law, so he really couldn't do much for him. So he told him, reach out, reach out to Richard Forbes. He's still with the state of Utah. Maybe there's something they can do for you. And Isaac did that. Dick Forbes really wanted to help and tried to help him and looked into ways that, they could, that the state could help him. But as far as the state of Utah was concerned, the LeBaron case was closed, and it just didn't have the resources to help the young man who had helped close it. Nice. So in desperation, which is just classic. This is like the 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 uh, Addie Hall and uh, um, uh, fucking Zach uh, uh, Bowen uh, case, where it's just yeah. like the government just failing another like man who helped them. You know. Yes. Yeah. So in a in desperation, Isaac checked himself into the psychiatric wing of Ben Taub Hospital, where he was treated for massive depression. After several weeks, his mental outlook improved, and he was released. Waiting to pick him up were his sister Lillian and his brother-in-law Mark Chinowith, who, if you remember from the last episodes, they're not good. Lillian and Mark had imprisoned uh, Arturo's mother, or, yeah, well, Arturo and Isaac's mother, and she had to escape from them. They were, like, full fanatics. Right. This was a strange decision uh, of him to to go with them because they were both still committed members of the Church of the Lamb of God. And Isaac had. The people he had just spent his late teens running from. Right. Isaac had testified against Mark, even saying in court that he believed Mark would not hesitate to kill him. Yeah. But maybe by June 17th of 1983, Isaac was just tired of running. The next morning, Houston police would respond to a call of a shooting at 2024 Campbell Road. When officers arrived on the scene, Lillian Chinoweth led them to a back bedroom where they found Isaac LeBaron on the floor with a gunshot wound to his right temple, a 22 caliber rifle lying between his knees. Since the officers were not aware of the LeBaron story, they believed the story that Lillian fed them. She told them that Isaac had a long history of mental illness and suicidal tendencies 
and that after a recent stint at a psychiatric hospital, he was clearly more unhinged than ever. Police bought in and believed they had a suicide on their hands. They seemingly ignored the fact that two other bullets had been fired in the bedroom, one that was lodged into the closet door and another that had gone to the ceiling. They also didn't question the fact that Isaac had been dead for a very long time before his death was called in, and no one in the house, sleeping in rooms less than 10 yards away, had been woken up by two other shots. But regardless, a death certificate was issued for Isaac LeBaron, 20-year-old victim of suicide, and he was buried on June 21st, 1983, a couple of feet from his father's grave. Oh, fuck off. Just so sad. And, and, and the, just the, the spitting, like, just to add insult to injury, they buried him near Irving. Right, yeah. It just made me so bummed when I read that part. I literally, like, closed the book and I just had to get up because I was like, dude, I really wanted this yeah. kid to make it out. Like, yeah, his testimony was so sad and just... Right, his testimony was heartbreaking. He he did everything right. He he had the symptoms and he tried to get well, that's, help for it. That's what I like is that it, that's what I, you know that stood out to me is that he's the one LeBaron who was like, "Holy fuck, I have mental I can, illness." Well, and it's like I can see the pattern. Yeah, and like he, I see the cycle, and I don't want to be a part of it. Right. Instead of being like, "Oh, I'm the new one, mighty and strong." Oh, okay. Yeah. He was like, "Fuck that!" Like, right. no. Yeah. So it's really tragic. I just, that one doesn't sit quite right with me, man. It's it's fucking horrible. Yeah. By the time of Isaac's death, things were heating up down south. Leo and his men had returned to uh, La Jolla in all-terrain trucks, armed to the teeth, and attempted to take La Jolla by force on more than one occasion. Leo lost many men in the shootouts, and two children were wounded in the crossfire. A 10-year-old girl was shot in the leg and dug out the bullet with a screwdriver. Ah. Before wrapping the wound with a rag. That just shows you the re- the day-to-day that these people lived where these children just thought that was normal. Like, they didn't bat an eye at getting shot. They were like, oh, got to get this bullet out. Oh, well. You know? Like, Jesus fucking Christ. insane, right? Yes. How is there, and maybe I don't, how is there a full uh, assault happening and nothing, like, there's no... So... Like, there's no police presence or anything? There's nothing? I mean, it's like a... It sounds like it's a literal war zone. Yeah, so part of it is they're so isolated, too. Sure. That, yeah. like, it's out in the fucking middle of nowhere, the desert. The, and also, another part of it is Mexican authorities are not the best. You know, okay. Mexican police sure. are bought out by people. Yeah, in Mexico, you don't really call the cops if you have an emergency. I mean that's fair. I mean you shouldn't even call the cops if you have an emergency in the United States. They don't do. They'll probably shoot you. But I, that one I lady who got shot, or her whose son was killed, because he was trying to kill himself, and the cops pulled up and shot him. Yeah. Well. Fucking insane. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just don't understand how, like, a full open war is happening. It's so I don't know. It's so like bad. this even surpasses. This- Gang violence. This you know what whole, I mean? This whole case to me, and I was telling my coworker this, is so fascinating because at one point, it was like the biggest thing that was happening. But now, sure. into, now we don't even talk. Like There's, I'm never, we've no, never heard. Yeah. I've, I've never even heard of this until my dad told me about it. And right. then after doing the research for this, I'm like, dude, this was bigger than Manson. How the fuck yeah. is this not talked about more often? Bigger than Manson? I mean, not quite as big as like Georgetown, right? But uh, similar. Yeah. 
So one of the people who had followed Arturo and now felt that she had maybe made the wrong decision, as history seemed to repeat itself, was Lorna Chinowith. Lorna, if you remember, had been Ervil's fifth wife, and famously, she was the wife that had brought the prophet to his knees. She had made Ervil grovel after her time and time again. She was the sassy one. <laughs> yeah. She had followed Arturo after the death of his father because she had always been financially supported by Ervil and in the time after his death found herself shunned by her siblings and in dire financial strain. But when the tax on La Jolla began, Lorna wanted out and begged Arturo to let her and her eight children return north of the border. North of the border. Arturo agreed to let her go. And once she was settled, sent her children to join her. That's very nice of a Mason. Nothing. Then that's it. And nothing happened. No, <laughs> don't. Mm -mm. Lorna seemingly had not paid much attention as Arturo was taking an old page out of his father's book. He was not about to give up Lorna's eight children who had become vital members of his cult, who were poised to help out even more in the future, who could fight his wars, make his, do his dirty deeds or whatever. No, he's not going to give those up. So he sent Lorna north with her eldest son, Andrew, and Andres Sarate on a November morning. And so Arturo chose to reenact the events of his own sister's murder. Like Rebecca, Lorna never made it to her destination. According to one former cult member, she was strangled and buried in a shallow grave a few miles from La Jolla. Her body has not been found. Great. Literally, again, this is what I'm talking about, how it's just repeating. It's just yep, rep it's the same the shit. same shit. This murder only eased Arturo's mind, but it didn't solve his problems. With Leo and his men pinning him down in La Jolla, he had no contact with his criminal associates in Phoenix and Dallas, and to make matters worse, the Rio sisters who had stayed with him, Yolanda and Teresa, were now beginning to maybe entertain the idea of turning on Arturo. Because after Lorna's disappearance, they were like, this could happen to us at any right. fucking moment. And, and they were right. No, there's, no, there's no leaving. It's, no. it's win or lose. Yeah. There's no, I quit. So they began to secretly feed information to their brothers and Leo. And in December of 1983, Arturo went north to visit his disciples in Dallas after a break from the attacks. Sure. He managed to slip out, right? Well, it's not a very good siege. It's no. not a very good siege on Leo's part. Upon returning to La Jolla on December 8th, he was greeted with Leo. Sources differ on whether or not Arturo knew Leo would be waiting for him. Some say it was, a rain, it was an arranged meeting put together by Gamaliel Rio so the rival leaders could settle their differences. Others say it was a surprise setup brought about by the Rio sisters feeding information to Leo. Regardless, Leo was not in the mood to talk. As Arturo exited the pickup truck and made his way toward him, Leo drew a 22 caliber pistol and raised it towards Arturo, who ran to his truck for cover, but it was in vain. Leo shot him in the back five times. After only two years, and at the age of 33, Arturo Morel LeBaron, the one mighty and strong prophet of the Church of the Lamb of God, was dead. That's not the end. What, no, that's no, what no, I, no, I'm no, very no, bothered by no. the fact that that's not the end. It should be the end, Jose. There is, Mason, there is still 20 more pages. What? Oh, buddy. There's so many I, times where you go, oh, it's over. This is okay. At what point? But like, what I even what's even crazier though is like, who? How, why would you want to be the leader of this? Because you know you're what a I mean? fucking psychopath. I don't it's know. Like exactly. Because you have to I, know that you're gonna be gunned down, yes. or you're gonna end up in jail. 
Like those yes. are your two only options. Like I think after if I was offered a job and they told me, okay, now just so you know, all the previous uh, bosses, all the previous people in this position have either been killed or yeah. are now in jail, I would simply go, I don't want this job. No well, matter even, the perks, it, I don't want the job. It's even crazier than that because it's more like you've worked at the same company in the same department and you've watched and you the guy happen, that yeah. worked there get gunned down seven times and then they're like, hey, promotion? And you're like, yeah, I, I, think, I think I can do the thing that those other seven guys couldn't do for sure. I think I won't get gunned down, you say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm built different. That's what they were all thinking, that's, Mason. That's true. <laughs> I, I got that dog in me. They... Arturo was like, nah, not me. I got that dog in me. Nah, mm -hmm. not me, though. Yeah. But the Book of New Covenants, Mason, had actually prepared for this. Should Arturo fall, the mantle would pass on to another of Ervil's sons, William Heber LeBaron. Okay, I, but, like, yeah, I, obviously. I don't know. It, it, I guess that makes sense. Contingency upon contingency upon contingency. Ervil not... thought out the fucking future, man. He was You're giving prepped. him much too much credit for being like and in the very very likelihood that this guy dies this also, happens he's and got, in the very very likelihood that that guy dies this happens also he's got like 54 children so it, i'm sure right. he had lists going forever yes <laughs> yeah. yeah so the eldest son of ervil and anna may marston heber was 20 years old in 1983 and had been one of arturo's most loyal supporters he was tall heber's a william heber's a dumb name Heber's a city in Utah. It's one of the it's guys a, from the Mormon or something. Uh, Book of Mormon. It is a Heber. number. I think it's a stupid it's name. Like, it's like Elmer Fudd. Yeah. <laughs> Heber. Yeah. He was tall, blonde and brown-eyed, soft-spoken and charismatic. He was also a psychopath, Mason. Something the Church of the Lamb of God and Leo Yuvenyuk were about to discover. After the death of his brother, the new one mighty and strong headed down to Mexico to begin a purge of the chosen people. Heber was a strange choice to lead the church. He was not the second eldest son of Ervil. He was about the fourth in line, and he'd only met his father a handful of times. He had instead spent much of his childhood slaving away in the cult repair business under the supervision and torment of Dan Jordan. It wasn't until 1980 when his mother, who was one of the few wives to stick by Ervil's side after his imprisonment, arranged for him to be ordained a high priest in the cult. So... When Do you know? And this may be yes. this. This may be. I don't. This is just a theory. But was his? Was he the eldest of the loyal mothers? I don't know that. You know what I mean? Um, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not okay. sure. I think he, fine, he was yeah. the eldest of of Linda or of uh, of Anna and Ervil's kids. Right. I th I here's my theory on this. I think that she came around and she stuck by him and she you know. Give him that sucky sucky or whatever. And then she was like, you should ordain Heburn. He was like, mm. ah, yeah, I'll, I'll name him like second in command, like second That's in line. That's true. Fuck it's it. also you just know. like, I don't really care because I'm going to be dead. I don't, why would I care yeah, what exactly. happens if our two old, you know what I mean? He's yeah. like, look, ah, I honestly, I honestly think that, that, uh, that, um, Ervil didn't think Arturo would die. I really think well, that Ervil was doubt, like, uh, yeah, Ervil was like, sense. no, this guy, dude, yeah. he's my fucking, I trained him. He's exactly like me. No fucking way that they're going to take him out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then that two years in, buddy's gone. Well, he should have said in the book of last covenants or new covenants, don't um, make friends with a drug smuggler in prison. Yeah. When the book of new covenants stated that he was to carry the mantle should Arturo fail or fall, Heber was also surprised 
but he took his duties seriously nonetheless. He set out to inflict justice upon those who had betrayed his brother. When Heber first arrived in La Jolla, he showed cunning and patience. He played the part of a peacemaker and extended an olive branch to those implicated in the killing of Arturo. Leo had not stuck around, but the Rio's family had. Heber listened to Gamaliel's version of events in which he had arranged a meeting between Arturo and Leo for peaceful negotiations, only to be surprised at Leo's actions. Gamaliel told Heber that he and his family now realized that Leo was an evil man and that they had been deceived. Heber seemed to accept this and peace settled over the ranch for some time. But what Heber was actually doing was collecting evidence. He talked to different people on the ranch, and after talking with the children, he discovered that the morning of Arturo's arrival, Yolanda Rios had taken all the children and moved them into an airstream on the property before closing the blinds. You know what an airstream is, right? Like a... It's mob- like a... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Implying that she was aware of what was going to happen. One day, in early March, Gam- Gamaliel sat in said airstream with Andrew and Aaron LeBaron and Andres and Alex Sarate. When Heber stepped through the door, he confronted Gamaliel with his new information, and Gamaliel maintained his innocence, looking back and forth between his companions for help. After a few moments, Heber drew a a .45 automatic from his waistband and shot Gamaliel Rios in the face at point-blank range. He then stared down at the man's destroyed face and turned to those around him and shouted, Somebody clean up this fucking mess. And then casually walked out of the motor home. Again, remember how I said Ben uh, Heber was a psychopath? Uh-huh. The way that he stared at the fucked up face afterwards makes me think that this was a turning point for him. And he was like, oh, oh. I really like that. Yeah. Or like, like oh. I don't feel anything but a late, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have zero bad feelings about yeah. that at all. And what's interesting about Heber, and we'll, we'll see it as we go further, is I really think he's the first to actually get his hands dirty. Because mm. Arturo had people kill for him. Ervil had right. people kill for him. But Heber right. was like, I'll do it. Okay. Give me the gun. Yeah. Yeah. Gamaliel was buried in the desert after the airstream was cleaned, and his body has never been found. Next came Raul Rios, who was ambushed a few miles outside of the ranch. He managed to outrun his attackers, but succumbed to his wounds shortly after. After the murder of their brothers, Teresa and Yolanda knew they were next. Teresa managed to escape, but Yolanda was not so lucky. I should mention that Teresa Rios was actually missing and presumed dead for many years before she was found alive in 1988 in a mental hospital. She would then disappear from there and now has never been found. Which is just crazy. That is nuts. Yolanda had been a loyal follower of the church, helping Vonda White kill Noemi Zarate, sheltered Ervil LeBaron as he was on the run in the 70s, and had joined Arturo when he made the move to the ranch. And it was for this reason that she was to pay the ultimate price for her betrayal. For several months, she was kept as a slave to Heber and his lieutenants before being moved to a safe house in Dallas. There, she was kept for some time while the chieftains of the cult decided on a spot to dispose of her body. After one was found, Heber moved forward with her atonement. She was led into a back bedroom of the house at High Meadow. There, waiting for her were the five chieftains of the cult, a chair and a jug of cheap red wine. Yolanda was told the reason for the meeting. 
and that she stood accused of being complicit in the murder of Arturo LeBaron. She maintained her innocence and told him that she had only moved the children into the room because she sensed something might go down. They didn't like this answer and made her drink the wine and asked her again for her to relay the events of the day. They did this over and over again for hours. Finally, when she was drunk and beside herself with fear, she admitted to the tribunal that there had been moments when she was weak and swayed by her brothers to believe Leo Ivonyuk was right. But now she saw that they had been wrong. Perhaps Yolanda thought that by admitting this to the tribunal, they would have mercy on her. After all, she had raised most of the young men who stood before her. Because remember, the, the Mexican wives raised all the kids. So she right. had raised all these fucking kids. All these, all these guys who were standing in front of her, she fucking uh-huh. changed their shitty diapers. She fucking right. breastfed them. She, You know what I mean? Yeah. So she was like, no, like that'll, you know, they'll... The tribunal took a vote. And by four to one, Yolanda Rios was sentenced to death. We don't know who was who here uh, because uh-huh. this, the case has never been solved, so the names were being, have been withheld by the police. So gotcha. we don't know who the one vote was. Right. Uh, Yolanda could no longer stand, and she was carried out of the bedroom towards the garage as she vomited and cried, begging for mercy. She was loaded into a pickup truck with the assassins on either side of her. The pickup truck left the quiet neighborhood in the dead of night, and when the two men arrived at breakfast time, the deed was done. Yolanda had been strangled and buried in a shallow grave. Her body has never been found. Okay. Yeah. And this one, so 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 Anderson points out that this one is like probably the most fucked up one of the killings because they never torture people. They just kill them. But with her, right. they tortured her for months. And when yeah. he says that she was their slave... Yeah. That could I, mean a lot of things. I don't yeah. know. I think I have an idea of what it means. I don't know. Regardless, though, I mean, it's but, Jesus Christ. But it's just, it's, yeah, he was pissed. Heber was pissed at her, specifically, yeah. to, to, do, to, to devote so much time before atoning her, killing her. Yeah. Now that the traitors had been taken care of, Heber set out to reorganize the Church of the Lamb of God. Gone were the theological trappings and justifications of Erval's time. Under Heber, it was now clear what the Church of the Lamb of God truly was. An organized crime syndicate built along family lines. A Mormon fundamentalist mafia. And Heber streamlined it and approved the auto theft operation, making it one of the largest in the American Southwest at its time. A house with high walls was rented in downtown Caborca in Mexico and converted into a chop shop. Heber was also smart enough to cultivate a relationship with one of the of Caborca's police chiefs and with the resident drug traffickers. The patio of the Caborca shop was converted into an armor plating shop. There, the church would outfit pickup trucks with bulletproof plating and use them for personal use as well as sell them to local drug dealers. Jesus with, Christ. Yeah, I'm telling you, he took it from like 3 yeah. to fucking 11. Yeah. Uh, like with, straight up like... Uh, yeah, mafia or, like, yeah. cartel shit. Mm-hmm. Jesus. With these new Mexican contacts, the cult began running drugs and guns across the border. Heber created a mafia, with himself as the godfather and his half-brothers as his capos. The whole thing was centered around family. Family. Which made infiltration... Familia. <laughs> Most of... I, I imagine he did the thing, too. I imagine one night, you know, they've had mm-hmm. a, They've just smuggled cocaine, again, or fentanyl or whatever, across the border. They're back in their house, and... They're cracking 
I don't know what Cervezas. these guys are doing. Yeah, they're cracking some fucking Corona. He's got his wife beater on. He's got his big cross on, and he's going, the most important thing will always be the people in this room. Salute. Be familiar. You know? Yeah. 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 And they're like, oh, what's that from? He's like, you'll get it in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is before your time. It's before, it's before our time. Yeah. It's, it'll... I'm, I'm a prophet of God, so I see. I get visions of the future. Mm-hmm. Vin Diesel. <laughs> He's going to be big. He just says that, and they're like, what the fuck are you saying right now? Yeah, the Vin guy from Diesel. the shark. The guy from the shark commercials. Is that out yet? He'll be great. Yeah. So he also, and this part gets yucky to me. And look, there's been, okay, there's been underage marriages and polygamy or whatever, and that is bad, obviously. But I Hot just take. But, okay. He also took on four of his half-sisters as plural wives and often pimped them out to make new allies. Far more, far more so than his father, Hebert craved power and total loyalty. Anyone who could not comply was severely beaten or worse. He also had a high sex drive, Mason. Unlike his father, he actually quite enjoyed having sex and flaunted it to all those around him. The two, two former cult members remember driving through the Mexican countryside in a pickup truck while Heber lay in the back having sex with several of his half-sisters. Uh, I don't like this. Me neither, because there really hasn't been much incest in this until now, and then I'm like, oh, this guy watched Game of Thrones, and he was like, it yeah. Was, it was kind of like the last holdout of like... Yeah, I kind of was surprised that it hadn't happened until now. It was the one thing, the one, like, super fucked up thing that hadn't made it into the story yet, so... But now it's here. You're welcome. I know you wanted it. I know you were last time. Don't... Guys, don't, listen. Don't... Don't do my bit to me. Don't do my bit to me. I'm not letting you do the thing where you act like I wanted this. I didn't Off want the air, this. Mason texted me and said, man, I really wish there was incest in this I story. I never sent that text. That's not true. I'll, I'll post that on the Instagram. Don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> on the Instagram. You f- don't, don't do that. <laughs> so, he also had a higher bloodlust than his father. In 1985, after successfully building up his criminal empire, Heber began to see traitors everywhere. The first was Tony, Linda Ray's oldest son. On more than one occasion, Heber, who... Heber had beaten Tony senseless. Is well, this before he started suspecting he was a traitor yeah like more like he just growing up they did not get along they're right, brothers so but they weren't it's super one of those it's one of those classic things of like he's like hmm i'm starting to think that maybe that guy that i constantly beat the shit out of doesn't really like me very much yeah and so it's like good thought but also the thing is so like tony ran the 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 repair shop in dallas like he was like the most skilled one there uh-huh. uh and one day while visiting dallas in july of 1985 Heber pulls up and he tells Tony that if he was still in the repair shop when he gets back from running his errands, he was a dead man. So Tony packed up his shit and left. And yeah, as far okay. as we I'm know, gonna, he lived in hiding for the rest of his days. I'm going to I'm gonna get out of here. Sounds good. No, yeah, man. No, oh, whoa. No, yeah, no, I'll for leave. For sure. No, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I've always wanted to travel, so. You know, this is you're actually you doing know, me a favor. Actually, Thank you so much. I've always just wanted to not die. So yeah, I'll be out of here for sure. Second were the Sarates. The story goes that Andres got on Heber's bad side after raping one of Lorna Chinowith's younger daughters. After killing Andres, 
Heber and his henchmen murdered Alex so that he couldn't avenge his uncle, which is kind of smart. Like, I know it's bad, but I've always thought that if you kill someone... Okay. Whoa. Uh-huh, no, hang go ahead. On. Just saying, don't leave the... Uh, hang on. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, There's go no ahead. There's no way for me to say this. No, go ahead, for sure. It sounds like it's going to be good. Okay, here we go. In, in Kill Bill, I always... Mm. In mm-hmm. Kill Bill, she leaves the, yeah. the kid alive, and she's like, come find me later. But that kid's just going to grow up and want to kill her, so you just get rid of the kid. Yeah, but I think the whole point of that was she was a, that was because she was the good person. I'm just saying it was smart you know of what I to mean? kill like, her because he was it, probably going to wait and get revenge. She did that as, I think, uh, the, the point of the story was that, like, she wanted revenge, not murder. And I mean, granted, it's a gray area, and we could have an ethics debate about the the bride and kill Bill. But I think the point of her being like, I'm just I saying, know you're going to be if mad I kill at me, someone and their me. kid is there, I'm shooting their kid too. <laughs> no, I'm yeah, kidding. I mean, I, I, I'm well, joking. Okay, here's the, here's, I'm joking. Here's the thing: is I get what you're saying. You yeah. shouldn't. I guess if you're gonna be if you're gonna be a ruthless murderer, I guess go all the way. Is yeah. I don't like that that's the moral, though. No, it's not. Others maintain that the two men simply escaped the church and went into hiding. Andrew LeBaron seems to be the next victim, although a body has never been found. The pair had a falling out, and I just, I just summarized it because it was a, just a really long three or four pages. Basically, Andrew fell in love with this. He, go, he goes to try to steal a truck, meets the, the owner, meets the owner's wife, or the owner's daughter, falls in love with this 16-year-old girl. Uh, they end up getting married. Takes his child bride. He's like, let's go to Cancun. She's like, okay. Takes her to La Jolla instead. He's like, hey, I'm in a cult. I'm in a cult that's a criminal enterprise. And she's like, what the fuck? She finds out she's pregnant with this kid. She's like, holy shit, I got to get out of here. She escapes, has a kid over in the U.S. He's calling her all the time. And then she's like, you got to choose me or your criminal cult. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to choose you. Someone overhears. They tell Heber. Heber's like, cool. He calls her up and he says, forget about the kid. He's never coming to the U.S. And he never made it to the U.S. We don't know if he killed him. Uh, Heber says that he didn't kill him. But we don't know. Okay. So next was Jorge LeBaron, who also disappeared after falling out with Heber. He's but, killing a lot more family members than I expected him to. Yeah. But all of these disappearances and murders, they came back to haunt Heber Mason. With Tony gone, the appliance business went under. With Andrew gone, the chop shop soon followed, and without the Saratas, the Mexican operation fell into disarray. So by 1986, the LeBaron criminal empire was crumbling. Because he murdered all of Because the he murdered all the fucking talented going. people that were keeping it going. Uh-huh. That's okay. why you get a fucking toy. You get a little squeaky toy when you get mad. Instead of shooting the guy who's making you money, you just squeeze it really tight, you know? Or you count to ten or something. Or you get a guy to just follow you around so you can shoot him. You know, get a shooting guy. You get a guy that you can shoot. Don't shoot anybody. No, don't. Obviously. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't shoot anybody. <laughs> don't be in a position where you're like, I think if you, if you're in a position where you're like, I think I need to murder this per- somebody, don't. To make matters worse, morale was dropping fast. The remaining you're members. You're joking. Yeah, Honestly, <laughs> I guess that was a joke, but the fact that it's made it this long is fucking ridiculous so that there, this hasn't crumbled the re- yet. The remaining members had become disillusioned by Heber. So right, because prove, he stopped being, it stopped being a religion. Yeah, and it started, started just being, being a, like, 
I'm the kingpin from Spider-Man, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the remaining members had become so disillusioned by Heber, so to prove to them that he was indeed the one mighty and strong, he told them he was going to rob a bank. If he failed, <laughs> <laughs> now stay with me. Now stay with me. <laughs> Um, how are, how are we gonna how am I gonna prove to these all these religious zealots that this is that I'm really the religious guy? I know I'm gonna rob a bank. <laughs> so, Dude, you could just like stage a mirror. Do a magic trick. Yeah, just do exactly. this. Do do the finger one where you pretend to take your thumb off, yeah. and they're gonna be yeah. like, "What?" Because remember, most of these kids didn't finish fourth grade, so they're gonna put be a, like, "Whoa!" Put a glass table like half an inch underwater. Yeah, and that, walk oh, on that it. would do it. That'll do it. Yeah. So, uh, he if he failed, they would know that he for sure was not the prophet. Uh-huh. On November fifth, nineteen eighty six. Remember, remember the fifth of November, the gunpowder treason and plot, Kai Fox Day. He entered a small bank in Richardson and pointed his forty five automatic at the cashier demanding money. I'm sorry, he's doing it personally. Yeah, it was him. Like he was gonna do it. He's a fucking idiot. I mean, obviously, but Jesus Christ, he's a fucking idiot. He's not even a good criminal. Well, he also didn't have the first fucking clue about robbing a bank because he wasn't aware right. that they had silent alarms. So the right. clerk trips the silent alarm, and they also slip a die pack into the money bag, which he didn't even fucking know was a thing. So as he's walking out of the doors, the die pack goes off, and he's like, what the fuck? The money's all covered in paint. And that's when like police swarm the mall area, and he's like, uh-oh, and he takes off on foot. And they pursue him, and, and as he's being chased, he, he wheels around, lifts his pistol, goes to point it at a cop, and he pushes a button on the side of it. And, and 45 automatics have two buttons, one that's a safety release uh-huh. and the other that releases the clip. And he pushes uh-huh. the button that releases the clip, and the clip falls to the ground. As he kneels down to grab the clip, the officer puts his gun on his head and says, fucking try it, I dare you. When he arrived at the police station, he was limping. He had a swollen and bruised face. He claimed police brutality. Police claimed he had a really bad fall. I, what a fitting in to a man that I thought was a Looney Tune from the beginning. Oh, buddy, it's not over. Also, and I don't, look, this isn't even, I'm going to have a a you moment here where you defended the the double murder. Um, If the gun's cocked, there's one in the chamber. Yeah, he could have. I'm just saying you can yeah. shoot and then pick up the clip, which I, I, get, I get don't do either, but still. All that's true. Right. Well, also, they probably did. They did probably do police brutality. 100% they did police 100%. brutality. <laughs> yeah. But police didn't know who they were dealing with. They didn't know that William Samuel Harrison was actually the son of Ervil M. LeBaron, and so his bail was set, paid, and he was released, leaving the police in his rear view. This close, Mason. This close to avoiding so many more deaths, so much I, more tragedy. This I really, I really close, Jose. I really thought that, I really thought that that was gonna that there was gonna be like that was the end of Herber, and there was gonna be like another one. Nope. So it seems okay. that the three short weeks that he was in jail, like his father and Joseph Smith, he had done some soul searching. With his criminal empire failing, he set out instead to fulfill his duties as the one mighty and strong prophet and earn his throne of celestial glory. Uh-huh. He dusted off his copy of the Book of New Covenants and set about to follow his father's blueprint to exaltation, which could be achieved through blood atonement. Blood atonement. Why didn't he why did he think the bank robbery was gonna I still don't fully understand. Well he that. he was like, look, you don't think I'm the fucking prophet of God? You don't think God's on my side? I'm gonna uh-huh. fucking rob a bank. It's just to And me, if I yeah, fail but- 
then I guess I'm not the fucking prophet. But I'm not going to fail because I am the fucking prophet. And then he failed and he was like, I was kidding when I said that. <laughs> but I just, like, if you were like, I got to prove that I'm the prophet, it seems like following the book of how to be a prophet would be the better idea in the first place. <sighs> I agree with you. <laughs> now you may be... <laughs> That's all I have to say is, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. There were so many moments that I literally, as I was reading this at like 2, 3 in the morning, that I was just like, mm, you're so close to just like succeeding at being a criminal and you do stupid shit. I, it is so weird because it's like, no, don't do that. But then it's like, well, but then I don't want you to do what you're, else you're going to do. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, just stop. Now, you may be wondering, but Jose... There was one person who was left out of Heber's purge, the man who pulled the trigger. Oh, Leo yeah. Leo Ivonyuk. I was going to bring that up. I'm glad actually. you brought that up, Mason. Yeah, you're Leo welcome. had made his way to Monterey, California. He sure. had started an irrigation company and his own church, the Millennial Church of Jesus Christ. What they teach how to be on your phone all the time? <laughs> <laughs> was it what were the what were there was there were there what did you have to take a harry potter quiz what did you did you have to collect uh fucking porgs come on yeah come on pogs 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 right that's what they're called pogs my bad not pogs yeah. pogs that's okay this church that he started, that he started the millennial church yeah. of being on your Do phone. You like how I like how we burned them from above and below. Yeah, yeah where we yeah. were like you know like always on their phones and then but also they love Harry Potter. Like yeah, fuck yeah. you, millennials. The uh, boomers were right. What can we say? <laughs> you guys suck. I don't know. Not, they're not very good. A lot of the time. I'm, I shouldn't. I should stop. I'm so close. I'm. So might anyway. as well be a millennial. I'm so so to thirty. <laughs> buddy, you relax. You're twenty five. Settle yeah. down. I'm closer to 30. Oh, yeah, shut up. Everything's easy. It's easy. Well, Jose, when you're 23, I remember it was two years ago, and I was like, ah, I'll never die. <laughs> and now I'm like, my fucking knee hurts all the goddamn time. If it makes you feel better, I'm like a couple of months from being 24, so I'm almost there. No, it doesn't, because you've got a, still a whole other year before you're where I'm at, which is, uh, it's awful, Jose. You're going to realize that you, you die. Everything gets terrible. His church taught Oliver Earl LeBaron's teachings. Uh, life had been going pretty well for him. Uh, over the last three years, that was until he was accused of threatening the town of Colorado City after a letter was received which threatened blood atonement upon the residents and just said, you know, signed by Leo Ivonyuk. And authorities were like, what the fuck is going on? So he gets called into uh, um, questioning. Um, he's, he's dragged out of his hiding spot to clear his name, which seems to have been the plan all along. After returning from Utah, after speaking with authorities there, I'm he was, sorry, he was going to destroy Colorado City, Utah? N no, it's... No, 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 it was in Colorado, but I, because because they, they heard that he was, like, involved with... Because they had heard this before, uh, Salt Lake authorities were interested, and they were like, another fucking LeBaron's out there? Like, another LeBaron cult member? So that's okay. why he was called up to Salt Lake. Okay. Um, so um, when he returns, he is called by a prospective client who wanted to hire him. The client left a number and an address on the corner of White and Calabasas. On the afternoon of May 21st, 1986, Leo climbed into his pickup truck and never returned home. All police found on the intersection of White and Calabasas were spent 9mm shell casings and dentures lying in a pool of blood. 52-year-old Leo Peter Ivonyuk used dentures. Call now for your free copy of The Lamb of God. 
It's a gift without cost or obligation from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, well, I mean, well, not all of these are that heartbreaking. He's a killer. <laughs> he kind of seems so, like a yeah. piece of shit. I don't know. Yeah. He didn't really. <laughs> I mean, uh, kind of cool the way he died. Actually, it's yeah. a fun missing persons case. I do kind of like, and I wonder if they did it on purpose or not, leaving the dentures behind. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. Seems Dan- like a weird. Actually, well, you know what it probably was is it was probably like guys like you and I who were just like ew ew. I'm yeah. fucking t- you touch him. No, I'm not picking I'm not him up. Take, I'm not picking up. Oh. They're fucking them right in his mouth. You pick him up, and then like one no. of them kicks him towards the other one. The other one's like ah, ew. Stop, dude. Stop, dude. Fucking stop. Really, dude. It's not funny, dude. Fucking knock it off. <laughs> ew, gross. His teeth. We can joke about this one because he was a piece of shit. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm he was so a happy. Yeah. Dan Jordan had settled in the small and quiet town of Bennett, Colorado. With his large household, he became quite known around town. Uh, there was a joke that the teachers had that um. Because so many of the kids had the last name Jordan in town that if the Jordans decided to move, a lot of them would be out of a job. Ah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. You know what? My favorite part about this is Dan Jordan, obviously, after all this went down, he changed his name to Jordan Peterson. And now he's got a very successful mm-hmm. YouTube channel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dan, I can't think of Dan Jordan as anybody but Jordan Peterson. I've only thought of him like yeah, that. Yeah. It makes me laugh. Now 53. <laughs> that guy sucks. I fucking hate that guy. Yeah. Now 53, Dan Jordan had put the whole Church of the Lamb of God business behind him. And he believed that Ervil's children would too. I don't know why he thought that. That's the dumbest shit you could believe. Look, Did you even thing, know Ervil? If there's one thing I've been able to tell by being in this for the for like the longest time is this is something that'll just go away and die down with no problems. One thing I know about the LeBarons is they don't hold grudges. They don't hold grudges. <laughs> And they just let things fizzle out. They do not get upset about things. They don't make things end like, in a spectacular, fucked up fashion. They just let things fizzle <laughs> and just go on and just... They'll just get a job at, like, Arby's. I'm sure right now they're working you know? at Arby's. Hi. Herb, Herbie we've LeBaron. The, we've got the meats. I'm I'm Herbie LeBaron. Herbie. Would you like to try a, ro- a roast beef sandwich? Herbie the, the, the LeBaron bug. Hervey the l- l- Lurb bug. The Lurb bug. The Laburn bug. So he was quite surprised when seven of Ervil's <laughs> teenage children knocked on his door. Aaron, the hey, oldest. Of- hey, what's up? <laughs> oh, what the fuck? <laughs> and when you say Ervil's teen or LeBaron's teenage sons, do you mean. Are we still doing, are these still brothers and sisters, like, are these still Ervil's kids? Yeah, these are Ervil's kids. He's got okay. 50 God. fucking three kids, dude, I know or he's 54. got so many kids, I just, but the fact that some of them are still teenagers is wild to me. Yeah, some, most of them are, like, early 20s, teens, and then, like, young. <laughs> Jesus Christ, like, this guy like was children. The, this guy was the Genghis Khan of the Southwest America. <laughs> yeah, he really was. There's so many little barons everywhere. So, he was quite surprised when seven of Ervil's teenage children knocked at his door. Aaron, the oldest among the group, told him how Heber had lost his mind and left them behind in La Jolla. They had come to Dan Jordan because they had nowhere else to go. They told him they were willing to work at his repair shop for a roof over their head. Dan was probably fueled by greed rather than compassion, and he took the group in. He never quite trusted them and began to wear his 9mm in his shoulder holster once more. 
He put them all to work on grueling schedules and always kept a close eye on them. Yeah, now what? I'm I, fair. I, me personally, the again, this is why they think he was motivated by greed was because he was like, he had a shit ton of kids, and he was struggling to like make ends meet because he just had right. to repair a business repair shop, like a, so a, a appliance like repair a shop. Bunch of free labor, yeah. Literally, no he was he did a Mr. Krabs and went ching, you know, like his yeah. eyes turned into money bags. Yeah, or because he looked I, at, he, he looked at he looked at each one of the kids and they were like stacks of coins going down. <laughs> yes. and he was like, ooh. <laughs> the fact that like if I ever had a choice between like. You could save a little bit of money, but you have to carry a gun around with you all the time because you think you're going to get murdered. Yeah. I mean... Dude, I might do it. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I don't know. I'm not doing it. I don't want to do that. I'm paranoid. (laughs) I'm paranoid right now. I think my cats are plotting to murder me all the time. I think everybody's out to get me. I I couldn't imagine being like this guy who's provably murdered people and his children who have provably murdered people want to live in my house and if, i'm just like yeah, if only her. dan jordan had listened to the first five episodes of the series he that's would true. have known that's true as fall approached he was faced with a dilemma every year around that time he would go away for a couple of weeks on a deer hunt he didn't trust the LeBarons enough to leave him behind, so he brought the majority of his household with him to the Manti LaSalle National Forest in central Utah. I've been there. Pretty cool forest. Look, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I can't. We can't roast this guy too much, right? Yeah. For being like, hey, I'm going to go on a trip where I'm going to be out in the secluded woods. Would you kids that I don't trust uh, with my life come with me? <laughs> I would have just left them at the house. Okay, what? Yeah. They'll ransack you know my house? Who gives a right. fuck? You know what they can't do at my house? Kill Murder me. me. <laughs> yes. The group set up camp, and on October 16th, the canyon where the group had set up was filled with sounds of gunfire as hunters prepared for the hunt the next morning. At around 2 p.m., Dan Jordan left his tent. Wait, what? They were uh, all the hunters were just like I thought that was stupid too because I was like wouldn't that scare the deer away in the slightest? But also it's what? Utah and it doesn't surprise me. Everybody you got a bunch of guys with of... guns together, they immediately go, "We should start shooting these." Look, I'm not I'm not dissing shooting guns. Shooting guns is awesome. Just it's weird that like these guys seem like the type that like actually want to hunt, and so just to be like, oh. if <laughs> yeah, if if I was a deer, I'd be like. I don't think we should be in this area. Hey, man, Sounds an awful should, lot uh, like gunfire. Get the fuck out of here. It seems like maybe there's a bunch of hunters. I think we should go closer to the sound. Yeah, good point. Right. They're white. It is Utah. They're white deer. Yeah, they're fucking stupid. Yeah, that's what white deer do. Yeah. At around two we go towards the danger. Oh, I thought you meant like white-tailed deer, but I realized. Oh that nope, I mean like white people. Like white we're people, just like yeah. I heard a bunch of gunshots. We should go oh, check scary. that out. We should go see what it is. Uh, so at around two p.m., Dan Jordan left his tent and his nine millimeter behind to relieve himself in the woods. Someone aimed a 9mm at his chest from 14 feet away and fired. The bullet tore through his spinal column and dropped him to the ground. Moments later, a second shot was fired into his head. The bullet hit Dan in the right temple and exited below his left ear. Unbeknownst to the killer, this did not end his life, and he actually bled to death over the next 30 minutes. Hmm. So it did kind of end his life. Yeah, but not like straight Just away. not immediately. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. If it wa- thank God he had a tiny little pea brain. Yeah. And just it didn't hit it. Is this guy? This guy sucks, right? Are we okay yeah, to make he also said. He was like Irvel's yeah. like second command. He was okay. a shitbag. 
He's got a tiny little brain. There's so much room that the bullet just it went right underneath it. It actually bounced around a couple times. He was discovered by a passing hunter. An hour later, and two hours after he had been shot, police finally arrived at the scene. <laughs> a sort of... Fu- I mean, to be fair, like... Manti, get it. it's like far from civilization even today. There's not a lot around there, but yeah, like, I, get it. I think they also were like, oh, another hunter got shot. Great, yeah. yeah. A sort of a funny little <laughs> interaction took place as the police prepared to take his corpse away. The hunting party, his his hunting party insisted on seeing his body as he had faked his death in the past and they wanted to make sure that he wasn't doing it again because uh, remember he was the one that faked his death in the uh-huh. last episode so they like lifted uh-huh. the sheet and then they all looked at him and they were like yeah I guess he's dead like oh yeah huh, looks pretty dead to me <laughs> but they were like wait 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 are uh, we sure me, he's dead does anyone have a mirror that I can put up I want to just like there's just like EMTs, like yeah, yeah he's fucking dead. No, he's dead. Just like, mm, no pulse. Uh, I don't know. With the murder of Dan Jordan, the LeBaron story gained national attention once more. Newsweek ran a story in December of 1987 after detailing the disappearance of Leo and the murder of Dan Jordan. Writer Pamela Abramson reported that investigators believed that three more people were targeted for death. The three targets were not named in the article but everyone involved in the LeBaron investigation knew who it was. Mark Chinoweth, Duane Chinoweth, and Eddie Marston, the former disciples of Ervil LeBaron, who now led quiet lives in East Texas. I still don't understand why, as a... It feels like we've left religion so far behind, right? At this point... I think why? we left it in like the third episode, second episode. Sure, episode. but I mean, by this point, why they're even like out of some sort of like loyalty I, to a father who, again, like Heber met his dad a handful of times. Yeah, and it's not like, like he doesn't seem to like believe in it. He just wants power, and I don't understand how he thinks. I that just these think it's brainwashing. Give it to I him. just think it's that brainwashing. Yeah, that they just don't. Raised, they just don't yeah. know what else to do. Is just except for seek vengeance. Yeah, really, honestly. And again, remember, okay. like I said earlier, these kids were raised to believe that this is normal. It's normal yeah. to go and shoot and kill people, and that's fine. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's Mason- more. So they're just they're like practicing. They're just not really into it. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're just like I guess so. Uh, it's yeah. like I only I only do blood atonement on like uh, on like Christmas Eve. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that kind. Of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're lapsed, lapsed yeah. blood atoners, yeah. Yeah, they're like, well, no, we'll go like uh, for like Easter and like Christmas, we'll do blood atonement, but like, it's not like every Sunday. Like that one time I went to church with my family and I hadn't been in like a year and I showed up in a Hawaiian shirt <laughs> and my cousin was like, why are you wearing a Hawaiian shirt? Like this is, this is mass, you have to, like, and I was, and she's like, you have to wear nice clothes and I was like, it's my nicest shirt. <laughs> My you nicest Hawaiian shirt, man. I, you should have said, because in my mind, Jesus likes to party. I honestly think Jesus looked down and went, nice. <laughs> yeah, you guys couldn't. I was doing the hang loose. Yeah, he was doing the hang loose. Anyway, Mason, we have now reached our climax. On the morning, I'm going to climax. I'm going to come. I've been saying Are that we? a lot. <laughs> June 27th, 1988. A murder investigation unlike any Houston police have dealt with before or since. On the morning of Monday, June 27th, 1988, Thelma Chinoweth 
was alone in her son Dwayne's business, where she manned the phones. She I've received, never seen Dwayne spelled like that before. It's so weird, right? D-U-A-N-E. Dwayne. I thought it was Dwayne. Nope, it's Dwayne. Okay. She received a call from someone who identified themselves as Terry Phillips. The caller told her they were interested in selling a washer. Thelma offered him $75 and the caller accepted. Wait, wait, wait. What? What? Like, uh, she got a phone, like a random so phone Thelma call? So Thelma manned the phones at Dwayne's business and he worked as a, a appliance repairman. They all oh. did. Actually, all three of them. Eddie, Marston, Mark. Eddie, Mark, and Dwayne all worked as, because as, that's what the, the Colts business had been for a really long time, was appliance repairman. I was, okay, I, I just thought that she got like a phone call. No, no, and no. And she was like, yeah, I could buy it. <laughs> I could buy a washer. How'd you know I was in the market? I mean, I'm not really looking for one, but sure, I'll buy it. 75 is a steal. That's something my dad would do, is he would come home with shit, and we'd be like, well, we don't need that. And he was like, yeah, but it was really cheap. Like, well. <laughs> you know how much I saved? Yeah. Well, none, because we didn't need it in the first place. You, no, don't no, no, you, know, you, you don't understand finance. You don't understand finance. You don't get it. You'll get it when you, you pay. Don't get it. You, you, You'll get it when you're older. You trust me. <laughs> I stole these, basically. <laughs> Never like, made that. <laughs> He would, man. There were so many times where he would show up like that. And he'd be like, what is this? Like, and he's like, I, I don't like, Look, 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 look. I got he, us all thermoses. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're thinking. But, but, they were four for ten. Well, one time I remember he would, he, show, he would show up with shit and he's like, I don't know what it does. What does it do? And I was like, I don't fucking know. You bought it. <laughs> I was like, what is this? I don't know. What is it? I don't know. I just bought it. I remember one time he showed, which, you know, this one is really cool now, but uh, he showed up with a record player. We didn't have any fucking records. We just had a record player in our living room. We were like, did he want records? No, no, he never, he never (laughs) attempted to buy any. He was just like, I was driving by. It was at a yard sale for like 10 bucks. And it was like a really nice old record (laughs) player. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I thought we'd get into him. You say, I, you like a nerd, right? I don't know. Would you want this? Uh, he was. This is he, all of this was he, your dad trying to connect. No, to it you was. I remember. Like, he what the fuck, he would buy me like weird books, and I would be like, I've never heard of this book before. And he's like, I don't know. It's got like a dragon on the cover. And I'd be like, <laughs> uh, I mean, thanks, dad. thanks, dad. I you you're trying. I guess uh, this uh, seemed like some. Uh, you know, I saw this and was like, oh, this is for fucking nerds. And then I was like, oh, you know who's a fucking nerd? My son. Uh, my my son lovely. My lovely son, and so I bought it for you. Here you go. Yeah. I love you, son. Yeah, he tried. He, well, we'll give him that. You fucking nerd. <laughs> so anyway, so she, she takes down his phone number and address, and then she tells the, the caller that her son, Duane, would be there at 1 p.m. to pick up the, the machine. As she hung up, Thelma read the address, Rena Street. She thought it was funny that the street shared a name with her daughter. She thought it was curious. Curious indeed, Mason. If she had called the number back, she would have discovered it didn't belong to the home on Rena Street, which had been empty and up for sale for over a year, but rather a payphone outside a gas station on Tidwell Road in North Houston. At some point that morning, the receiver had been glued down with epoxy glue. Well, what does that do? It just means they can't pull up the receiver. So if somebody were to call back, you wouldn't be able to answer because it's glued on. You know yeah, how payphones work? Yes. Okay. 
but I don't understand why that would like. It stops anyone from using the the the, the payphone. It stops anyone from calling back at the payphone and discovering, and then someone passing by being like, "Oh, this is a payphone, man," because that's how payphones worked. You'd call I, back and. Right, but. I don't understand. That just seems like I guess I don't. Don't worry about it. Because it so, seems like that lets you pretty easily pinpoint. Like, like the, there was an f- incoming f- phone call at this time, and it was like, okay, so we know when they made that phone call because that was the last time it was usable. Well, and also, who's walking around <laughs> answering? Guys in the eighties. That's all you did in the eighties. No, 80s. I would never. In the be like hello, hello. I, fuck off! I don't. If that's your business. <laughs> well, Thelma was on the phone with Terry Phillips, two hundred miles north in the town of Irving, Texas. Eddie Marston got a call from a Mister Perry Wilson, a man who wanted to sell a used washing machine. Eddie made a low offer, and the man accepted it. Eddie then arranged to pick up the machine at one in the afternoon in the one thousand block of Shear Lane. He took down the caller's number. He had, had he called back, he wouldn't have received an answer from the home as the home sat empty and the number actually belonged to a payphone outside the stop-and-go uh, store on the corner of Story and 4th Street in Irving. At some point that morning, the receiver had been glued down with epoxy glue. When Eddie arrived at the home, he found no one. He waited about 15 minutes before returning to his shop where Perry Wilson called again. He apologized for missing Eddie and asked if they could reschedule for 4 p.m. Eddie was annoyed, but agreed. In Houston, shortly after 1 p.m., Terry Phillips called Duane's appliance shop to say he wouldn't make the appointment and asked to reschedule for 4 p.m. Shortly before 4 p.m., Duane got in the driver's seat of his 1986 GMC pickup truck. Next to him was his 8-year-old daughter, Jennifer. At the time, Eddie was leaving a shop and merging his pickup into the steady flow of traffic. In northwestern Houston, a young man in a four-door sedan pulled out of the IGA parking lot on the corner of Blalick and Hammerley. He drove a short distance across the intersection into the parking lot of Reliance Appliances, the appliance store owned by Mark Chinowith. At exactly 4 p.m., Duane turned off Pinemont and entered the Forest West subdivision. He reached Arena Street and found no cars in the driveway of the home. He assumed his client would be there soon and reversed his truck into the driveway. As he was doing so, a black Chevy Silverado pickup truck sped down Rena from the opposite direction. It was driven by a man or a woman dressed as a man with short blonde hair and a white Panama hat. In the passenger seat was a white man in a business suit, his face adorned with a short strawberry blonde beard. The Silverado stopped directly in front of Duane's truck. The bearded man stepped out and made his way up the driveway. Duane exited his truck and waited for the man beside his open driver's door. The man exchanged a few words with Duane before pulling a three fifty seven Magnum revolver from a shoulder holster and shooting Duane in the chest. The shot sent Duane back against the driveway, his legs hitting the lawn and his head landing just behind his truck's left front tire. The man in the suit stepped around the driver's door, bent down, and fired two more bullets into Duane's brain. The man was then startled by a scream. He got up and peered into the truck's cabin and found eight-year-old Jennifer huddled against the far door. 
her mouth open in a terrified wail. The man in the suit leaned in, raised his gun, and shot the little girl in the head. I have to admit, that that part did make me tear up uh, as I was reading it. It, um, Especially what comes after two, it's just really fucked up. So I will say trigger warning for the next section. Seems a little late, but fair. Yeah. When police detective John Burnmester arrived on the scene, he found Jenny with her head tilted back. The sun was behind her and shone through her head. The detective said he was so shocked to find such a young girl killed in such a brutal way. John Burmester and Fred Carroll had just arrived at police headquarters when the homicide call came in. It was originally reported, and they went more into detail. That's all I wanted to say. It just, yeah, yeah, it was too much. Um, It was originally reported to them as a man and woman dead in a driveway. As they were leaving the office, another homicide call came in from just miles down the road from a repair shop on Blalock Road. Sergeant A.J. Topol, is that you? Topel? Topel? Topel. Oh, Topel, yeah. Was assigned to that call. As Burmester and Carroll began to entertain the idea of an execution, they got a call from Sergeant Topel. Topel? Topel. Fred Carroll stated that Topel asked for the name of their victim. When they told him it was Duane Chinnewith, Topel said, Well, it looks like it might. this might be a hit because his brother's just been shot to death, too. At Reliance Appliances, police found Mark Chinowitz sprawled into his office chair. He had been shot multiple times by a 45 automatic pistol. There had been no eyewitnesses. Unlike the other killing, however, this one was not as cold and calculating. Mark's attacker had made a mess. Several bullets missed their mark and were just all about the place. At 4.30, as Fred Carroll stepped over Dwayne's body to, take, to look inside the cab of the truck, a phone was sitting inside, and it rang. It was Lucy, Duane's wife. Police spoke to her and told her they would be along shortly. When they arrived at Duane's store, they found Lucy and Thelma. They told the women Duane and Jenny had been killed, but they said that Mark was gravely injured because they didn't want to overload them with bad news. Lucy, who was not actually uh, Jenny's mom, she was uh, Jenny's stepmom, uh, mm-hmm. began to cry uncontrollably, and Thelma just sat there stoically, before she began to regale the officers with a tale of Ervil LeBaron and the Church of the Lamb of God. She told them of the Book of New Covenants, and that another person was in grave danger, a man named Edward Thomas Marston. An urgent call was made to the police in Irving, but it was too late. At 4 p.m., police had been called about a shooting in the driveway of a house in the 1,100 block of Shear Lane. When the first patrolman arrived, they found Eddie on his back, besides his pickup truck bleeding out from several gunshot wounds. He was taken to Parkland, the same hospital JFK was rushed to, and pronounced dead an hour later. Investigators jumped to work when they realized that these three killings were connected. They took the dead men's families into protective custody and jumped to finding witnesses who might have seen anything. They hurried to gather information on the LeBaron saga, and who better to call than our pal Dick Forbes? Lieutenant K.L. Rowe of the Irving Police recalls, Uh, I heard he was the man to talk to, so I called him up in Utah. First thing he said was, Are you in a comfortable chair? Because this is going to take a while. I must have sat there for three or four hours just taking everything down, uh, just taking down everything he said. By the time we were finished, I had filled one legal pad and started on another. 
It was the weirdest goddamn story I'd ever heard. It is. That's yeah. a very accurate way to describe it. Yeah. Texas yeah. authorities released the names of their suspects that very night. The sons of Ervil LeBaron, Heber, Andrew, and Aaron. The media jumped on the story before Eddie was even pronounced dead, and the police found themselves surrounded by reporters camped out in their lobbies. In what Anderson describes as an almost Twilight Zone edge, the murders had taken place on the same date and nearly the exact same time as the murder of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon faith, 144 years earlier. Which is, that's, this whole story is there's, throughout this whole six, weird coincidences there's weird coincidences, the brothers all dying in the same month, uh, yeah. Ervil and, and, and Verlin dying within like a short span of each other. Right. Uh, the Mormon church jumped in to distance themselves from the killings with their spokesman, Percy Giblin, telling the media that the LeBaron group had taken their beliefs and spun them 180. He told reporters that Ervil LeBaron had never even been a member of the Mormon church and that the Mormon concept of blood atonement was the belief that a man takes another, that belief that a man who takes another's life should then forfeit his own in atonement. Two statements that were false, as we know by this point in our series. Uh, Ervil was a Mormon, he served a mission, and blood atonement was not defined as that by Brigham Young. Two crime scenes, three people killed, execution style. Two adult brothers and an eight-year-old girl, all shot in the head, twice at close range. Uh, On July 1st, 1988, the Waltrip funeral home was filled with half a dozen squad cars, with dogs sniffing the hedges and lawns around the chapel. As cars entered, they were searched and the occupants photographed. A policeman wrote down all the license plates. Uniformed and plain officers surrounded the building, and inside the chapel, everyone was quiet. The victims of the four o'clock murders lay at the front. Three coffins were full-sized and glossy dark wood. One was small and pink. All these precautions had been recommended by Salt Lake investigator Dick Forbes, who had made his way to Texas to help his colleagues in the investigation. The next day, as the bodies were set to be buried, I-10 had both sides closed as the uh, caravan passed, a security procedure that was usually only reserved for presidential uh, uh, motorcades. Mm. At the funeral, the main eulogy was delivered by Glenn Chinoweth, the only Chinoweth who had stayed clear of the Lamb of God. Ramona Marston and Vic Chinoweth had gone into hiding, and Rena, her husband and children, had been taken into protective custody. Thelma stood behind Glenn solemnly and never shed a tear. Anna May sang a hymn besides the casket of her son Eddie, who had most certainly been killed by, or at the behest of, one of her other sons, Heber. Which, that's a pain that I can't even fathom. Yeah. One of your sons being killed by another of your sons? Yeah. Fuck, man. Like, It's some biblical shit, all right. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the service, Lucy threw herself on Jenny's casket and wept uncontrollably. She was gently lifted off and taken to her car. This part's sad. Uh, as the caravan was set to leave, one of Duane's young daughters jumped out of the limousine and went to the coffins. She asked the funeral director if she could have the dove that crowned the floral arrangement on Jenny's casket. She began walk- to walk back to the car and then stopped and turned around and asked, from daddy's too. The director nodded and she gently picked it up before walking back to the car. All four victims were buried next to one another. Only Duane and Jenny's graves have plaques on them that read in order, Duane K. Chinoweth, 1956 to 
1988, Blessed Are the Pure in Heart, and Jenny Chinoweth, 1979-1988, Let the Little Ones Come Unto Me. Yeah, man. Um, it just takes a turn, I think, at that point with the 4 o'clock murders. Because everything else is kind of like, it, it, when it, you know, um, the Chinoweth brothers in Marston, they were not innocent. Right. They had blood on their hands. They killed people, too. Eddie Marston killed people. Mark killed people. Dwayne killed people. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it's just the the girl. They didn't have to kill yeah. her. Right. She didn't have yeah. to be blood atoned. She wasn't even alive for the majority no. of any of so us. That's, that's the part that I think makes these murders feel so different because it just went from like personal vendettas to just well it also feels like it makes the change from from gang violence to like maybe it's still the same i don't it's just it's like it goes from not, i think it goes one from thing like when they're actively you know running or working within this cult and doing stuff to like these guys were they were out of it yeah you know what I mean? It goes. They, it goes from being like like gang or brash killings to like cold, calculated uh, executions, assassinations, right. almost like it methodically like, planned. Was, Again, this yeah. is why it's called the four o'clock murders. They literally all. It's just insane that across the distances, at exactly four p.m., all three of these men and this little girl were killed. Right. Just bananas. I do think that a lot of the reason that this doesn't have as much uh, gravity as, you know, a lot of other places is because it's not, it's, it's not, it's not murder and psychopathy without financial motive. Like all of it is so systematic, uh, you know what I mean? And organized like, like a crime family as opposed to like, uh, what were the other Mormon brothers, the Lafferty brothers, you know, that, that brutally murdered them because they would they were had gone insane basically. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I also think it spans so long too. It's not condensed like most yeah, uh, true crime true. is. This this has been going on for twenty years now, thirty years since the sixties. Right. We're yeah. now in eighty seven, like or eighty eight. Yeah. yeah, like I think that also might be part of it too. And it's so in like um you know like uh, Dick Forbes told that guy, it's a fucking weird story. Like yeah. It's so weird. It doesn't. Yeah. There were moments that I had to remind myself that I wasn't reading fiction and that I was reading real things that happened because I was like, "This is a script. This is it's a movie." Less, there's not a lot of direct lines yeah. between everything. It's a lot more spider webby. So a little but, after noon yeah. on July first, nineteen eighty-eight, a pair of Phoenix police officers were patrolling for stolen vehicles. They came across a black Silverado with Texas plate and decided to call it in. A short while later, they got a match to a stolen truck from the Fort Worth area. They decided to stake out the rooms after finding out the drivers of the truck were in rooms 151 and 153. By the time other police officers arrived, they had seven suspects on their hands. Detective Oscar Castillo of the Auto Theft Division, who may be related to me, it's my grandmother's maiden name was Castillo, uh, was called in and he obtained a search warrant. In the room, they found the standard auto-thief tools, as well as three spiral notebooks, which seemed to be an inventory of stolen trucks. Well, you shouldn't have that. No. He also found, <laughs> yeah, just a book that says our crimes. Crimes committed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, evidence. He, evidence for cops. Yes. He also found a thirty-eight 
Taurus handgun, street maps of the Houston and Dallas area, half a dozen shoulder holsters, a fake beard and and mustache, vials of theatrical makeup, and a book on how to apply it. Well, and right. finally, a sense. copy of the Dallas Morning Herald from June 29th. Castillo didn't know what to make of it, but he decided to take the items into evidence. When he returned to headquarters, he teamed up with Patty Reardon to interview the suspects. Right away, they thought something was off. The obvious leader of the group called himself Joseph Elliot Michaels, and the group seemed to follow his lead, and they got nothing from them. Even at one point, and obviously that was Heber. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah. at one point they went, are you in a cult? Like they said, like they said, like, are you guys in a cult? And Heber just looked at them and went, <laughs> and just laughed. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <I'm- laughs> uh, shit. <laughs> the following morning, Patricia, Tarsa, and Natasha were released and they returned on the morning of July 5th to post bail for Heber and Doug Barlow. The group almost escaped the law's grass had it not been for the suspicious suspicions of Castillo and Reardon who had the group placed under surveillance. Using notebooks obtained uh, using the notebooks obtained, they were able to get arrest warrants for the five suspects that had been released on the charge of operating an illegal enterprise. Had the group simply left instead of waiting to bail out the others, they would have escaped the law. But on July Jesus 8th, Christ. Heber and Doug were stopped as they attempted to flee to Mexico. Patricia and Natasha did manage to slip out of Arizona. Through sheer luck or coincidence, Richard Holland of the Houston police was pursuing an angle that seemingly had no chance for success. An informant who had left the cult in 1985 told him some of the aliases uh, that Heber and his followers used. But he also told them that they hardly ever used the same name twice. That was the case for all except Linda Ray Johnson. In 1985, she had used the name Mary June Witt. I also hate that they use full names, these bastards. Like, they're using yeah. three names. I'm like, uh, and I know it was more common back then, but I'm like. It also just adds a little pricks. of, like, reality to I it. Guess. You know what I mean? I mean, it's better. I mean, if you're being doing crime, it's better than being like, what's your name? And being like. Scourge. Richard Thompson. Richard, middle initial, A. So <laughs> Richard, Richard, Richard Alabaster Thompson. <laughs> yeah, I guess. My friends call me Basty. <laughs> Basty. That's yep. a good one. So in 1985, she had used the name Mary June Witt, and then again when her and Patricia LeBaron, alias Pamela Monique Newman, were arrested in Pueblo, Colorado in December of 1987. On July 13th, Holland called Phoenix Homicide Division to see if they had any records of Mary June Witt. They didn't. He also asked about a black Silverado. He was transferred to Oscar Castillo. When Castillo heard the name Mary June Witt, he remembered reading the file of the 87 auto theft arrest to prove that Pamela Newman was the same woman as Valerie Davies, who they had caught at King's Inn. Within the, two hour, within the hour, two of the suspects being held in Phoenix were identified as Heber LeBaron and Doug Barlow. Two Houston homicide detectives, as well as Dick Forbes and Steve Voshtecki from Utah, made their way to Phoenix. Hey, rare, rare good job on policing there. Yeah. I, th- you know? This case actually has a lot of good policing. 
which yeah. is I'm like, ah, oh, man, I wish other cases would have learned from that. But, uh, yeah, being able to sort all that shit out, it's good yeah. detective work. Just before midnight on July 13th, the man, the men sat in a conference room and compared notes and tried to decide how to move forward. They first raised the bail to the hundreds of thousands mark, and then the Houston detectives obtained a warrant to search the impounded vehicles. Inside... Ah, oh, man, this is so... F- it's just, they were caught because they weren't good at getting rid of evidence. Inside, they found the suits that matched a description of eyewitnesses. The gun holsters that were purchased in Dallas with the store owner identifying Heber, Doug, and Richard as the buyers. And a street map of Houston with Rena Street circled. Again, just for police... Yeah. <laughs> like, crimes for yes. police to read. Yes. Uh, no, yeah, uh, <laughs> not evidence. Cops do not read. Yeah, they're like, oh, we can't read this. It says right read now. It. it. Says the, no. <laughs> the Houston police were now certain that they had been right about one suspect, Heber LeBaron, and that Doug and Richardson had assisted in the other slayings. Officers went in on their suspects for months, for fucking months, but they never got a single thing. Jesus. Eventually, a break came in October of 1988 when Natasha LeBaron was arrested in Atlanta, Georgia, on the charges of fraud for selling machines without serial numbers. And then this is just a bunch of, like, weird dominoes. So then on Valentine's Day 1989, a policeman in Chicago pulled over a pickup truck with expired Georgia plates. When the young man and elderly woman inside were acting shifty, they decided to question them separately. After they both gave conflicting accounts of how they had gotten to Chicago, they searched the truck. Inside, they found a slip of paper that read... Check on warrants for Natasha in Denver. Okay. Again. Again. <laughs> just. just they're, I think they want to be. Yeah, caught. I mean, I guess there were before time. It was before phones. You know, you what know, did you do? You know, you didn't have a notes app. Yeah. <laughs> the officers accompanied the pair back to their hotel room where they found two women in their 20s and five young children. After calling the Denver authorities, they were routed to Salt Lake authorities, who identified the group as Aaron LeBaron, Linda Ray Johnson, Patricia and Monique LeBaron, and the children of Lorna Chinoweth, Jessica, Jared, and Joshua, as well as the son of Yolanda Rios, Danny, and Teresa Rios' daughter, Norma. At this point, law enforcement officials throughout the American West realized that if the LeBaron cult were to ever be destroyed, they needed a sort of clearinghouse to organize their multi-state efforts. You know what a clearinghouse is? Like a warehouse? No, no, no. It's like a, it's like a database, like a collection that can be like uh, okay. some sort of database that can be accessed by multiple people. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Like a connected. Yeah, they needed. They basically just needed a like way a shared to, drive. Exactly. Yeah, like a Google Drive for all of them. Yeah. So, um, in July of '89. The federal government stepped in on the pretext that because Daniel Jordan had been murdered in a national forest, he'd actually been killed on federal land. So, assistant U.S. attorney... Again, this is all good work by everyone involved. It seems... I don't... My my biggest issue with that is it seems like you shouldn't... I don't know. Then again, what am I? I don't want to give the FBI more power. Never mind. Well, I, okay. but, but this was so that they could make a multi-state agency. So they could bring all these mm. agencies together because only the federal government gotcha. could do that. So the federal government found a loophole so that they could be like, okay, Houston police, you're working with the FBI and you're going to work with Arizona, blah, 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 you know? It just seems like if they were like, hey, we've got this whole family that's committed crimes in multi-states, they could be like, yeah, all right, cool, let's do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, let's start a thing. It's, I don't. I just don't know why they had to be like, 
I loophole found we're able to do this. Because that's the law, baby. So okay. assistant U.S. Yeah. attorney in Salt Lake City, David Schwendeman, organized the multi-agency LeBaron <laughs> Crime Family name. Task Force. It was codenamed Operation Jenny in memory of the little girl murdered on Rena Street. As the investigation went on, the officers found themselves with no hard evidence, and unless someone in the cult broke and finally talked, they couldn't bring charges for George, for the Jordan murder or the 4 o'clock case. So they decided to do the next big thing and get as many of the cult members off the street. In August of 1989, the five cult members arrested in Phoenix all pleaded guilty to auto theft charges in Maricopa County Superior Court. Heber and Doug were sentenced to 10 years, ineligible for parole until two-thirds of the sentence had been served. Cynthia and Tarza both received five-year sentences. Richard was tried as an adult because he was 17 and given three and a half years. The five young LeBarons, along with 18-year-old Monique, were made wards of the state of Utah and placed in five different foster homes in the Salt Lake area. Though they hadn't accomplished their main task, the task force had put every known living cult member behind bars. They knew this was temporary, however, and their hopes for a murder conviction rested on the shoulders of the young children. It was a hope for investigators that perhaps after some time with normal, loving families, the children would be more open to talking with investigators and sharing information that could help their case, like Isaac had. But at the right. same time, investigators had a more philosophical wish that maybe by being separated from the adult members of the cult and shown compassion... They would break the cycle of violence and refuse to become foot soldiers in the never-ending Holy Crusade. This hope blossomed in 1989 as the children adjusted to their new lives. Their families organized for them to meet up and their dependency on one another seemingly eased. Brian Barnard, a court-appointed lawyer for one of the LeBaron children, felt that the young girl that he represented was slowly blossoming into her new surroundings. He, he, this, is, this is a quote from him. He says, as she, as she settled in here, uh, the face she presented to me was that she wanted to stay. I want to live a normal life now. I'm tired of being on the run. At some point in the dead of the night on September 23rd, 1989, all six LeBaron children vanished, and they have never been found. And then what it's, the fuck? Yeah. And, and, and I thought, but all the other, exactly. I mean, not all the cult that, members no, were. All the adult cult members were in jail. So that's what they don't understand is where they went and how they disappeared. Well, they have well, theories the, that we'll get into later, but just the family, though, right? Like there were still cult members, just not like the like blood family or like at this family. point. At this point, the Church of the Lamb of God just consisted of the LeBaron family at this point, pretty much. Jesus, Everyone else had either been killed or fuck? had fallen away. Right. So, <sighs> but it. The reason, part of the reason the children were found is because it took them two weeks before they even started looking for them because the federal government assumed that because they were state ward states that the, U, the, the that Utah was looking for them. Utah assumed that because they were supposed to go before a grand jury and they were, they were, they were part of this case, the federal government was looking for them. And it wasn't until two weeks later that they both checked in on each other that they were like, oh no, neither of us is looking for them. And by that point, you know what they say. If it's not in the first 48 hours. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous, huh? That's so fucking, that's so fucked up. Like, why, even if you thought someone, it's like, no, fucking look for them. They're kidnapped children. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. 
In his closing chapter, Anderson paints a sad picture of the remaining LeBarons. And I summarized it because it's it's pretty long. Go read the book. It's Yeah. Most of whom succumb to mental illness and delusion in one way or another. Wesley with his spaceships, Alma with his continued assertion that he is the one true mighty and strong, Lillian, Ervil's daughter who had been married to Mark, never quite recovered from the killing of her husband. She squandered the 250000 given to her by her insurance, with most of it going to a fast-talking even evangelist preacher. On January 28, 1989, she put on her coat, walked into her living room, raised a three fifty seven Magnum pistol to her right temple, and pulled the trigger. She was found by her 13-year-old daughter. Thelma went into hiding. Since her name was in the Book of New Covenants, she lived in fear that if Alex Zarate was still alive, he might come for her. After all, she had stolen him from his mother. Victor Chinoweth was never charged with a cult-related crime, and he too went into hiding. Rena, who I very much made clear of my disdain for her, asked to be placed into federal witness protection, but a request was denied. One of the investigators on the LeBaron case said, uh, What did Rena ever do for us? The WPP is for informants whose lives are in danger for cooperating with police. Rena never gave us shit. The only thing she ever did was beat a murder rap. And there was a quote from a, um, a publication at the time that said, The police would be that if tomorrow Rena walked in front of a truck, the police would not care. Because mm. they had no sympathy for her. Right, she she yeah. was like oh we're on, you're on, I'm, we're on the same side and they were like you're a murderer we know right. you're a murderer right yeah so she would go on to write a book called the blood covenant uh, which I almost nearly picked up and then last minute decided not to in yeah. which she makes digs at her murdered sister Lorna insistently claims to be a victim and offers detailed accounts of her encounters with oversexed male partners rule on C Allred's murder is dealt with in a few paragraphs. In 1979, the young pregnant Rena took the witness stand to tearfully deny involvement in his murder. In her book, she flatly states that she was the killer. This is directly from her book. Reaching into the pocket of the blue parka I was wearing, I pulled out the gun and fired at him. There were seven shots in my clip, and I emptied it. I heard him gasp, oh my god, as he fell to the floor, bleeding. It all happened so quickly. I hate this, I hate this lady. It's like, it's like the fucking Hamolka chick from mm. the Ken and Barbie where it's like yeah. yeah I guess you were a victim but you also did a lot of shit that right. makes you not a victim you know yeah yes Rena released her book on the 13th anniversary of Rulon's death but the Arred family did get justice Mason while she was appearing on the Sally Jesse Raphael show in July of 1990 halfway through the taping a lawyer representing the Arreds served her with a subpoena in a wrongful death suit the Allred family was seeking $130 million in damages. In 1992, the Allreds won the suit in a Utah court. At the time of the book's publishing, uh, Anderson was doubtful that they ever received any of the money. Mm. In 1990, Richard was released and quickly went underground. Aaron was extradited to Utah after serving his Illinois sentence and placed in a halfway house to await his appearance before a grand jury. One night, he just walked out and vanished into thin air. Right. After their Arizona sentences expired in the fall of 1990, Cynthia and Tarsa were returned to Utah for their turn in front of a federal grand jury. They were, for some reason, also placed in a halfway house, and to no one's surprise, they too escaped into the night. 
Some investigators believe that Andrew's death was fake, and that it was he who returned to nab the LeBaron children in the dead of night. But most believe that the children engineered the escape themselves and now lived and then went to live with Aaron near Monterey, Mexico. Prosecutors, prosecutors worried for what, the fu- for what the future held. In the Book of the New Covenants, Ervil and Vonda White's youngest son, Nathan, is listed as the next one mighty and strong prophet should Heber fail or fall. Heber LeBaron was set to be released from prison in 1995. And that's the, at the end of the book. This is where we've reached the end of our source material. The book was published in 1993. That's all he knew at the time. Okay. This next part, I'll admit, the timeline and information after what is presented in the 4 o'clock murders is a little fuzzy. From what I can make out based on a letter written by, and I had to search the internet, there's not a lot on what happened post this. There's, right. it, 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 like literally Wikipedia is reduced to like footnotes. Yeah. Or, yeah, and it's very confusing. The information is all over the place. I did manage to find a letter written by Heber LeBaron while he was in jail. The case by the state of Texas against him for the robbery was dropped due to clerical errors, but the federal government did decide to prosecute him on federal charges. He was given a 10-year sentence as part of a plea bargain, and the 10 years would be served after his Arizona sentence ended. Sure, whatever we can do to keep him in jail. So that would have kept him in jail until 2005. Okay. At some point in 1992, after returning from Dallas, he was indicted for the four o'clock murders. According to multiple sources, it was Heber who killed Mark, which makes sense because if you remember, Heber favored the 45 automatic. Multiple times mm. I mentioned that he had a 45 automatic, 45 yeah. automatic, yeah, 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 and yeah. that's the weapon that was used. Right. Um, but this is where things get strange. So according to an article from the Desert News, which is a Utah Mormon church-owned publication, so take it with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. uh, from 1997, when the prosecution ha- uh, when the prosecution happened, when the, tr- the, the, the case went to trial for the 4 o'clock murders, Aaron was named as the leader of the church, and mm. it was presented that it was he who had ordered the killings to be carried out after Tarza had a vision from God. And this seems to come from Cynthia's testimony in court, because Cynthia was the one that flipped on all of them in order for immunity, and that's how they were able to get them, because uh, right. they, they picked her up for some other crime, and then uh-huh. she flipped on them and was like, we did it. I, I want right. immunity. I'll tell you everything. And that's how they... So Right. what we do know is they're all probably... Uh, in jail for life. Aaron and Heber are for sure in jail for life. They're, they got okay. life sentences. They're not getting out. Okay. But there, I saw... I, Wait, so who... the? It was thought that the kids were living with Aaron? Was that a different Aaron? That's the same Aaron. When the kids escaped, because he, he, was, he was put in the halfway house and then he went missing, right? Right, yeah. And then eventually they pick up Cynthia. She tattles on all of them. Aaron is picked up. When he's brought okay. before court... It's said, based on her testimony, that he and oh, okay. and Jacqueline Tarza, Tarza, him uh-huh. and his sister Tarza were actually the real masterminds behind the church, and he was he was uh, the real leader. This doesn't make sense, and I don't believe this. I believe that's just the the the, the testimony that Cynthia gave to maybe absolve herself and Heber for some reason, right? Um, to try to protect the actual. The yeah. court doc states that he because he would have been way too young, so. Uh, right. I think Aaron was like 19 when all, when the four o'clock murders happened. So but there were no. Sorry, so I turned my game up. You're fine. He would have taken over the church at 16, according to these allegations. But there were no, there were no nothing about the kids when he was picked. No, back we up. still don't know what happened to the kids. Jesus Christ! They, so they probably didn't go live with Aaron. Uh, right. Anyway, so 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 the court doc also states that Heber 
killed Dan Jordan, which makes sense because Dan Jordan mm-hmm. tortured Heber in his childhood. He hated Dan right. Jordan. So yes, according to the yeah. court doc, Aaron lured him out there, right, for the camping trip or whatever. Mm-hmm. He told Heber where he was. Heber walked up to him, shot him, dead. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, but again, in this letter, Heber states that – so that that's from the court docs. In the letter, though, Heber states that he took over the church at the age of 20. And we know that the the book of New Covenants states that he would. So I don't believe that Aaron and Jacqueline were behind the church right. because they were so devoted to believing their father's shit that they wouldn't mm. jump the train of succession. I don't think they would right. do that. Right. They were just they were just trying to, or Cynthia was just trying to protect the real. Leader. Yeah, I think so. So anyway, um, so he says that he was he took over the church at the age of twenty. Something that's backed up by the book of New Covenants. And this is where I'm very confused by all of this, right? I don't know. Mm. It's it's fuzzy. I believe that Heber was a real mastermind who ordered all this. I believe mm. Aaron just got placed with the blame. Um, but it doesn't matter because they're both in jail, so that's okay. It doesn't matter who their leader was. They're both right. in jail. They're living out life sentences for the, these killings. Okay. Regardless, it seems that all the perpetrators are behind bars and will be for life. Tarsa was actually on the run for quite some time, uh, and she was even added to like the the FBI's most wanted list. Uh, she was caught in 2010 after she was found wow. in Honduras, uh, and she pleaded guilty in 2011. In court, she admitted to playing a role in the murders at the request for Brother Heber, which again, see this contradicts the previous. Uh, mm. So, she was ordered to pay 134,000 in restitution to the victims, uh, and she was supposed to get three j- three years in jail. But she was released in 2012 due to good behavior. Uh, I don't really know what happened to her afterwards. There's not; she just falls off the face of the earth at this point. Uh, I don't know if she paid the restitution. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. According to his letter, Heber LeBaron, and it was really interesting. If you want to read it, I'll send it to you. It's really just interesting. He found yeah. Christianity, and he realized the lies of Mormonism, and he wishes that all Mormons can be delivered from the lies and deceptions they've been fed. And he goes on to say that he knows what he did is wrong, that he was, you know, he was like, my father's an evil man, that the whole like polygamy thing, everything about Mormonism is fake, it's a fraud, Joseph, like I don't like Joseph Smith, he's a liar, he's a con man, and it's like, buddy, it's too little too late. I hate to be the yeah. one to break it to you. Like, uh, yeah. you, it's too little too late. Yeah. Um, I really wish I had more of a solid picture of how this whole saga ended, Mason. Uh, it, it actually kind of bugs me that I don't. So if there's any listener out there who has a clear painted picture please write in i want to know where they are or if you know yeah. a source where i can find this post yeah. post book yeah yeah now unfortunately the lebaron's family uh the lebaron family's suffering did not end with the imprisonment of heber and the church of the lamb of god the FBI is now investigating the murders of nine American women and children in Mexico. The victims, all members of a Mormon community, they were ambushed last week near the U.S. border. Some of you may remember hearing the last name LeBaron in the news a couple of years ago. On November 9th, 2019, about 70 miles south of the Mexico-American border, cartel gunmen opened fire on a convoy of three cars. The vehicles were carrying members of the LeBaron and Langford families. The group was composed of women and children. One car was heading north and the other two south to Colonial LeBaron for a wedding. The three women were killed and two children died as a result of their car catching fire due to damages sustained. Nine children survived, including a seven-month baby who was left unharmed in the vehicle. 
A young boy and girl walked for hours to get help after covering their siblings with branches. And if you look into this incident, it reveals that maybe the remaining LeBarons have found themselves embroiled in criminal activity involving the cartels in the area. Who knows? That could be its Jesus. own thing. And these were the uh-huh. firstborn LeBaroners. These were the firstborners. They had nothing mm-hmm. to do with the Church of Land. Right. But maybe after, yeah, after yeah. Inve- if you kind of do some leaking, it seems that maybe th- this was done as to send a message to mm. the male LeBarons by the cartels. Gotcha. At first it was like, oh, it was mistaken identity, but now they believe that they were involved. It's, an, it's a weird coincidence if it was. Yeah. yeah. What I will say is this. This is my closing thoughts on the six-episode series that has taken months to complete, that I have spent countless nights uh, losing sleep and my mind over. Yeah. Let it serve as a cautionary tale of the dangers of fanaticism, of total and utter blind devotion, and most importantly, of the danger in elevating simple, flesh-and-blood human beings into something grander, prophets, saviors, or chosen ones. To me, the whole barren saga is nothing but sadness. Sadness for the innocent people who were slain, but also for all those who found themselves a part of this delusional, wicked group. I feel pity for those who were brainwashed from a young age to believe that all the murder and mayhem, the pain and suffering around them, was normal. I honestly feel bad for all the LeBaron children who clearly had untreated mental health issues and never got the help they needed. Instead, they were turned towards religion, which can be a great healing thing, yes, but it should not be all. I feel especially sad for Isaac and young Jenny. Isaac was so close to making it out, to having the life he wanted. He saw the dangers of his mental health and went for help, but his mistake was in trusting his family. And for the obvious reason, Jenny's murder stands out the most to me. I have an eight-year-old sister, and reading that passage describing the cold-blooded murder of this you know, little innocent flower, it destroyed me. But it served to remind me the dangers of the world, the preciousness of life, I suppose. So in my final words uh, on this case, I repeat the words I've said before when dealing with true crime. Stay vigilant, stay safe, and stay smart. Trust your gut. If something feels off, call it in. And to Ervil LeBaron, in whatever hell he may be rotting in, I say this. Fuck you. Yeah, you can suck my dick in hell. Uh... Anything you want to add, Mason? No, I mean, that wrapped it up pretty well. I mean, uh, not to go all woke, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, uh, fundamentalist religion, and it's bad, and, you know, don't, we shouldn't, you shouldn't kill people. Don't kill people. You know, you can punch Nazis. Oh, please. Send me pictures and videos if you do. I think we, we what we talked about when we started this this whole series was that this would be a really interesting examination to cult mentality. And I honestly feel that I've learned a lot about who exactly becomes a cult member, how cults hang on to their, their, their people for so long. Yeah. I think, again, I really do believe in, in, in what uh, the, 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 the prosecutor who prosecuted the Manson case said where he was like, Cults thrive off the 10 psychopaths in 100, you know? Like yeah. out of 100 people, cults manage to get the 10 people who are susceptible to that thinking and then they just completely brainwash them. And right. I think the sad thing is, as someone who grew up in religion, is that I see 
which I'm not saying all religion is a cult, but there are very obvious religions out there that are cults. And what makes me sad is to see people still a part of these and talk about how they're giving their lives over to it. And I'm like, do you not stop and see that you are well, being asked too much, frankly? I don't think that all religions are cults, but I think no. that every religion uh, inherently breeds predatory behavior. Yeah. It doesn't, and you know what I mean? I'm not talking about like the fundamental beginnings. I mean, we can make that argument, but any church that lasts will eventually have someone who uses faith to take advantage of people. Well, and what's interesting to me is that in today's world, not to go all woke here, uh, mm. but in today's world, we're seeing that applied to not just religion anymore. It's about it's being applied to yeah. social movements and yes. political ideologies and political yeah. views. Well, yeah, and it's for fucking. Sure. I mean, that's because it's just it's that's QAnon. That's the Proud Boys, and I'm like, how do you people not fucking stop and see that you are involved in something that's maniacally bad? Like right. you're you're just setting out to hurt people. There is no. There is no grander well, plan. There is no grand, grander purpose. And I know that a lot of those people just accept that, but I think a lot of people don't, and they don't even realize that they're being fucking brainwashed. Well, I mean, because that's, that's what it is, right? It's not a culture war. It's a class war. Mm-hmm. But and when the upper class can make a, us fight each other, they win. Yeah, and they do. I mean, that's what... they. The whole point of, of rich people is to cause more derision between... Uh, poor people and middle class people if they even still exist to the point that we don't can't stop and be like it's fucking rich people yeah. i don't know how uh, this how i got to hear from religion but uh, yeah that's what yeah. happens yeah. is we've taken political ideology and turned it into a religion and now we're having religious wars over politics instead of dealing with the actual problems yep but anyway subscribe yeah. to our patreon <laughs> give us money give us money make us billionaires Please, will be good ones. We promise. I promise. We just have to get there. I promise. Yeah. We winked <laughs> for the we audio winked. listeners. We, we winked, winked at each other. Yeah. Well, with that, Mason, what do you say we just wrap the show up, man? That's it. <laughs> if you like the show, make sure to leave us a five star review, which you can do in app on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We would really appreciate it if you leave us a review. Be like these guys fucking made us sad. Five stars. Yeah, you can support the show by going to patreon.com backslash captain's log cast, uh, patreon.com backslash captain's log cast, and donate a dollar. Anything helps keep the lights on and helps Jose, you know, be able to write these scripts and go to school and and help us keep making stuff. And not shoot people. Is Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you can also go over to Tea Republic <laughs> and shop our merch. Uh, you can click the link in the show notes and grab yourself anything of our handcrafted designs. And there's going to be a new one going up because yeah. we changed our, our, uh, our podcast art. We've got a new one. Mason nailed it. It's fucking awesome. He killed it. It's great. Yeah. Remember, if you donate slash support, it all goes towards improving the show and perhaps allows us to do this whole time and not take as many long breaks in between episodes. Mason, where can these fine little followers of ours find you? Uh, you can see all of my art and everything on Instagram at Mason Schrader. Um, uh, I, do, I do, I do art, I do graphic design and sometimes I post pictures of me doing stuff. So you can also put a face to this voice. 
Well, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at j.valle underscore junior and the show on Twitter and Instagram at and TikTok at Captain's yeah. Log Pod. Uh, we recommend various different materials on there, post show updates, post some occasionally funny things. You want to watch some bloopers, go check out our TikTok. Uh, yeah. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Valle Jr., Animal Productions, and of course the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. If you're a video podcast consumer, we're going to catch up. We're going to post them all soon. Don't you worry. Uh, if you can't get enough of me, you can also listen to my other podcast with friend of the log, Max Benyon, called Max and Jose Have Something to Say, or on a special guest appearance on Max's other podcast, Better Than Citizen Kane, where I joined him and his co-host Parker to discuss the animated film Ratatouille. Keep an eye out for an episode featuring those two here very soon. Ooh. Uh, make sure to tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoy it. If you'd like to share your opinion on this case or have some insight to share, please do so Please do so by writing in to captainslogcast at gmail.com. You can also suggest episode topics, guests you'd like to have back, etc. Make sure to subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, and any other podcast directory. Thanks to Mr. Carlos Rivera for composing our Spooky Shows theme. I will link Carlos's uh, social media in the show notes uh, moving forward. He is great. He's a photographer as well, a videographer. He's killing it over there. Um, With that, everybody, we have reached the end of our show. We'll see you soon for another episode. I've been your captain, Jose Valle Jr., joined by... Mason, not a cultist traitor. And this has been Captain's Log. End of transmission. Beep boop.